Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast. My name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And today's episode is with Dr. Seth Wood. I'm particularly excited about this episode. I first met Seth. I first met Seth at a wedding there in Oklahoma, and some of the guests at the wedding uh, wanted me to meet Dr. Seth Wood. And when I did, I found out that he was using my podcast in his course there at the university at OSU in Stillwater, Oklahoma, where he teaches. And to be honest, at, in that moment, I was shocked. Uh, and I, I don't remember anything that he said. So I took the opportunity two years later to ask him about what his course was and how my podcast fit in. Got to admit, I was pretty curious, but this podcast is not about that by any stretch of the imagination. That was me satisfying my own curiosity. This story is really a powerful one in a lot of ways. In 2013, he was the victim in a vehicle accident crash. We're going to get into how we address and talk about these things later on in the podcast, but um, he was the victim. He was hit by a car that didn't see him. And he nearly lost his life for real. And it was at that same time that Bobby Wintel, who is the owner of District Bikes there in Stillwater and now the founder of the Mid-South uh, Gravel there, 2013 would be the first year that for Mid-South, which was at that time called Land Run 100. And that first year, Bobby Wintel, not knowing Seth, decided to donate a portion of the proceeds from the race to Seth Wood. And what unfolds is a beautiful story that really showcases the power of this community. And I'm not going to tell their story for them, but I do want to share that this is a, I think that this is a special episode and I hope that we can all get something out of it and we can all learn the value that this community has and the impact that it can have in people's lives. And I appreciate Dr. Seth Wood for coming on and sharing his story so openly and from the heart. It really did touch me. And as I have had an opportunity to sit on it for a few days now, um, I found that his story was particularly profound for me. And I hope that you will uh, get something out of it as well, too. It's an unfortunate thing that he was involved in that accident, but oftentimes in life, it's not what happens to you, but but what you do and how you respond to the events in life. Okay, well, again, I'll let Seth tell his own story. All right, well, we, before we get to the show, we just have a few matters of business to attend to. This episode is supported by Experience Fayetteville and the Fayetteville, Arkansas community. Uh, Fayetteville is excited to once again be the host community for the 2021 Arkansas High Country Race. It's quickly becoming known as one of the most challenging bikepacking races in the country. The 1,000 plus mile Arkansas High Country Race departs from downtown Fayetteville on Saturday morning, October 9th. The race follows the perimeter of the Arkansas High Country Race a series of three mixed services loops that connect several of the state's stunning natural regions, including the Ozark and the Wachita Mountains and the Arkansas River Valley. 
And new for 2021, race officials have announced the creation of the short circuit race. This is an opportunity to experience just the Northwest Loop of the route. The shorter 240 mile distance is perfect for somebody who's looking to push their limits on a little bit shorter course. Now, registration for the 2021 Arkansas High Country Race and the Short Circuit Race opens June 1st, 2021. That's June 1st, 2021. Mark your calendars. Each race distance is limited to the field of 50 competitors, and they expect them to fill up fast. Additional race information, including links to register, can easily be found by searching High Country at experiencefayetteville.com. All right, and you didn't think that I was going to forget to thank our newest patrons, did you? So we've had a nice group of people sign up to be sustaining members of the show since our episode last week with Ride With GPS on route building. So this week's new patrons are Kelly Wolverton, Seth Wood. Yep, the same Seth Wood that is on the podcast today. Appreciate him stepping up. I actually had the opportunity to thank him in person for being a patron, and I completely fumbled that. So, But he still gets a shout out. All right, and all the way from Canada, we have Hacient Gautier. Hope I got that one right. And all the way from Finland, Antti Leskinen. I hope I got that one right too. And lastly, we have Andrew Honorma, who's actually going to be our guest on next week's episode. So you have that one to look forward to. I really appreciate everybody stepping up. I always say it, but it really does mean a lot. We have a new initiative. I am now asking you to hire me to be a full-time Bikes or Death podcast host. Over the last three years, I've juggled family life and work life and podcast life, and it's been a really good run. But as we get into a later season in the podcast, I'm looking to devote more and more time to it. Uh, there's just so many guests, so many topics, so many opportunities that are available. But first, you got to hire me. You got to hire me as a full-time Bikes or Death podcast host. So if you'd like to find out more about how you can hire me, head over to patreon.com forward slash Bikes or Death and you read my short job application there. The truth is that a lot of y'all are stepping up and I really appreciate it. We just hit 200 patrons yesterday. 200 people stepping up to support the show on a monthly basis. Truly incredible. And while we're throwing out numbers, I also want to just thank you all so much because for the first time ever, uh, Bikes for Death broke into the top 10 on the iTunes chart in the wilderness uh, outdoor category, which is where we're in. We actually hit number nine on the charts. And it was all because of some five-star reviews that came in. They really do make that much difference. I've been working hard to put out a podcast every single week. The iTunes algorithms obviously love that. And if we could combine that with some five-star reviews, I think we can keep this show up there in the top 10, which would be really cool, not only for the show, but think about the exposure to a whole new audience that can be introduced to bikepacking, the outdoors, cycling, and all the great guests and people that make up this wonderful community. Getting up there in the top 10, it's like getting on the first page of Google, right? I mean, people are gonna, gonna see it and you're gonna be able to reach a lot of larger audience. So it just really shows that the interest and the demand in content for bikepacking and adventuring outside and ultra endurance racing and all these things is really at an all time high. 
and it's got us competing with big dogs like duct tape them beer, you know, and meat eater podcast and Alex Honnold's new podcast, climbing gold. I mean, these are big, big names. So again, I'm just the guy behind the microphone, but at the end of the day, this is a community. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for each other. All of your support does make a difference. So thank you for being a patron. Put on your to-do list, head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. That lets the algorithms know that this is a good show and you want other people to hear it too. Again, this is a great episode. Got the chance to sit down with Dr. Seth Wood across the street from District Bicycles in an old historic building that was previously owned by JMB Photography, um, which is kind of cool. We sat up there and we had a really uh, great conversation. Truly enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoy it too. So without further ado, let's have Miles Arbor take it away with the Bikes or Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your boss, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. First off, I mean, I really want to thank you for doing an interview. I'm like really excited to get a chance to talk to you. One of the fun like things about the podcast in this sector right now is that there's like all these really neat people doing cool things and there's not like a lot of information, you know, like when I was researching you, for example, the second Google hit was my, my website. I'm <laughs> like, awesome. Well, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just not a lot, but, um, I've heard lots of good things about well, you. And I mean, that's, I like that you put it in terms of heard. Cause I feel like a lot of the knowledge about bikepacking culture and ultra racing and all is kind of exist as oral history. I mean, we tell stories about each other and we talk about each other and we, I don't know, there is like an oral history around adventure riding and endurance cycling and things like podcasts, I think are really good at capturing that because this is the way we normally talk. Just talk. I talked about you with other people. I've heard about you. You know what I mean? And a podcast just makes the telling and the hearing like, let's talk about other people, but record it (laughs) and then they can listen to it later. You know? (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, that's how I found about you is uh, through, well, actually, I met you, honestly, uh, we met at a wedding in Oklahoma, actually, here in Oklahoma. But Bailey Newbury, whenever I interviewed him, he spoke real highly about you. And then I did a a follow-up article with him, and he spoke highly about you again. And you're one of these people, like, people just your name like comes up a lot, you know? And so it's kind of like, it's fun to, uh, it's fun to just like get to know the people that are, that are doing this, you know? I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's really, it's exciting for me, you know? I think it's one of the things that became very exciting for me about riding bikes is I felt like right after I started riding bikes seriously, especially because of my relationship with the people at District Bicycles, I, I very quickly met a lot of people who were already very well known and very successful in the bike industry in a, in a host of ways, you know, like within the first several years of me, you know, riding bikes, I, I had met Bailey, you know, Bobby introduced me to Bailey at um, Gravel Worlds. I think it was, I think we had pizza one time before Gravel Worlds. He's like, Hey, this is Bailey. You know what I mean? And it just working part-time at a bike shop and becoming friends with people who work at a bike shops kind of made it easy to meet people in the bike world. And suddenly I felt oh, yeah. like I knew all these people that, 
it took me years to appreciate just who <laughs> you were getting to know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, I mean, I, well, that's the thing I got that, to go into Golden Saddle Cyclery after hours and assemble my bike one time when I did a trip out there. And it was only like two to three years later that I realized just how cool that was. Yeah. yeah. Well, that that is the point, right? Like when I met you a couple years ago, I didn't I didn't know your story. People were at that wedding. I remember were like, hey, uh, you got to meet Dr. Seth Wood. Oh, you know, this incredible guy and all this stuff. And so someone like brought me over to you. Yeah. And I actually wanted to ask you about that. So I guess that actually turned out to be a good segue. But so the first time we met was at Thomas and Gabby Adam. Um, at their wedding somewhere in Oklahoma. I don't remember where it was. I think it was at St. Crispin's. I think it was, yeah, because yeah, the, there's some riding around there some, yeah. that I've never done, actually. That's one place that I have yet to ride in Oklahoma. But yeah, I think it was at St. Crispin's, that complex there. I think that's where we were. Yeah, that's right. And by the way, it was like an all-star cast of cyclists there. It was like pretty overwhelming. Yeah. But yeah, you were one of the people that everybody kept mentioning your name and someone was like, you got to go meet him. Come on, let's go meet him. And, and I found out at that time uh, that you were a professor and you were in, at some degree like using my podcast in your course. But like, honestly, I was so shocked that I don't remember what you actually said. Like, I don't know. Oh, okay. I still don't know. Like, I'm sure you told me at that time, like how like interworked into your class, but uh, it might be like a little bit um, for my own personal interest here. But I am, I am curious. Like, I mean, I, re I remember what I said. So, uh, well, I'll, I'll just give a, a, a quick bit of context. So I was then teaching a class, which is like a one credit hour class. That's for the honors college at Oklahoma State University. So the students just get one credit hour doing it, which means they only meet one hour a week. So you have to figure out how to, and the class is supposed to be kind of hands-on, like they're more directly involved in the course aims than the usual passive, you know, way of just receiving knowledge from a professor. They're supposed to be engaged, engaged you know, it's supposed to be like a hands-on learning experience. So I was trying to figure out a way to kind of teach a class that would teach like writing and research skills and communication skills but be something that they could produce and when you only are meeting one hour a week. And I came up with this idea to create a student podcast, like a podcast that would be for students, by students of Oklahoma State University related to anything about the life and culture there. Um, and this was the first semester of the class. I've now taught iterations of this class over several semesters, and now the podcast is a real thing. It exists. It's called Stuff OSU Should Know. Okay. Um, and they've created it, and they've got this whole social media presence now, and, and the experiment eventually worked. They created a podcast. At that early time, this was like when I was first trying to get this class, this concept up and running, and I was using your podcast as an example of getting them to think about the difference between scripted and unscripted podcast recording. Hmm. Like I, I, I showed them lots of examples of podcasts that I would describe as like being very, very scripted where you could tell the people were literally just reading off a piece of paper. And I would point out to them like, is this fun to listen to? And they're like, no. And they could, they would all universally agree that that wasn't engaging to listen to. And then I had them listen to a podcast that was very unscripted, that clearly had no outline, but was just kind of people talking. And they're like, this is kind of overwhelming. It's hard, hard to distill the main points. And I brought in your podcast as an example of a podcast that I thought was like achieving some kind of balance between he's clearly got an agenda, right? He's got an outline. He's got a an outline that he's following, but he's not following a script. Like there's room for improvisation and, yeah. and chance, you know? And, and I was kind of using your podcast as an example of kind of like achieving some sort of 
I don't know, just balance, balance between wow. improvisation and scripting. And I was like, and you have to do that with a podcast. One way or the other, huh. it gets kind of unlistenable. You have to kind yeah. of achieve some I agree. balance. I never um, really thought about it. You know, first of all, thank you. That's actually a really nice compliment. But yeah, I, I just kind of fumbled around trying to find what works. But I just naturally knew I wanted to allow room for conversation. And and you're you actually nailed it, man. Like I mean, you're sitting here with me right now. Like I have bullet points. Oh, good. You know, like it's just like <laughs> yeah. uh, it goes in order, like 2013 to 2020. Sure. And then I've got you know a few like little like well, those are like newspaper. Uh, there was some new from the newspaper article. I got some yeah. like quotes in there and stuff that I thought were kind of interesting. Like that's what I mean. Um, you have an agenda. You have a yeah. strategy, but you're like open to things happening. You know, right? And, right. Um, I don't know. That's what I was trying to kind of figure out a way to communicate because I'm not an expert about podcasts. I'm not like, it's not like I have a degree yeah, in podcasts. <laughs> I just thought it was a good medium for teaching this class. Yeah. And I told him that I was like, I'm not an expert. I'm just, I listen to some podcasts like you probably do. And I brought in three different examples of podcasts about cycling. Cause I was like, this is what I'm interested in. Yeah. And I, um, at the time, Justin Dubois was still doing his, um, desolationist podcast. Okay. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the Desolationist podcast was how unscripted it was. Like I would describe the Desolation as being highly improvisational. Like he set up times and places to meet people, but you could easily tell that he had no agenda. It was right. just like, let's let something happen. Yeah. And on the one hand, that's kind of exciting and interesting. But on the other hand, it's really risky. You know, so yeah. I was kind of trying to talk to them. It's very about, hard to do. Exactly. It, that, that's harder to do. Yeah. It's easier. Like what I'm doing is easier. I plan, I prepare, right. I have, you know, some thoughts, like I know a little bit about you, um, what I could gather right. and stuff, you know? And yeah, I mean, I don't come in with an agenda, but I like to be, and this is something I'm trying to get better at is being more prepared. Cause there's certainly times as I've gone through my journey of learning how to podcast where I've actually experimented with, you know, coming in very unprepared, like the Rebecca Vader one. I remember it, in particular, like I, I don't think I did any. Like I, because oh, and the Alexander Houchin one actually that was a three-hour podcast. And the interesting thing, it's like that was another one where there was kind of whispered. This was like right before DK three fifty that she did, and then this. So this was twenty. I think this was very 20, yeah, 20. So that was 2019. So I interviewed her right before she did the DK 350 and the Tour Divide. And those two things kind of really like put her out there yeah. a lot more. I didn't realize the gravity of who I was coming in to talk to, but there is beauty in that too, oh, yeah. because you walk in and you're just like, holy fuck. I, I mean, but I'm just going to chase it wherever it goes. Sure. You know, you're just on the ride. And for Alexandra's own part, I bet it's refreshing for her to meet someone who doesn't approach meeting her as a big, yeah. you know, moment of gravity. You know, it's probably yeah. refreshing for her to just have someone who will talk to her like a watch well, And I will try to treat everybody the same because, yeah. like, I mean, you know, Lael is a huge um, icon for me personally sure. and a lot of people. But, I mean, I've interviewed her three times and, I mean, it's just like. Well, right. You don't have to, like, prepare as much for the m most recent time you interviewed her as you probably felt like you had to the first time. So, uh no, I, I prepare more. Oh, really? Yeah, because I have to like keep out doing myself, don't mm. I? Like I, I have to find new things to talk about and like I wanna I wanna get to know her. I'm always interested in getting to know people's stories. Yeah. Like I I don't know. I mean, the to me those stories about people matter. Those are the ways that we like relate to each other and um understand like 
I mean, we're talking about bikepacking all this, and and I and we all love that. But I like to know people's motivation. Like, I mean, everybody experiences the world differently, and so everybody's experiences are unique. And I think we can all learn from them. And and for whatever reason, like the group of people that that do this kind of stuff and adventure and bikepack in this kind of way, I haven't met one yet that wasn't pretty down to earth and an interesting person. For my part, I agree. I think people who ride bikes are and you're in the bike people. and you work in a bike shop i mean there's a reason for that it's because i i mean i came to stillwater oklahoma for a job at a university but that did not give me a friend group it did not give me a community yeah like what brought me a sense of community and family and belonging living in this new strange place was bikes and yeah. the people around bikes i still don't have a family at osu i still don't have belonging at the university right. or even in my department. I don't even have an office on campus. <laughs> they, they demolished it. But I have a home at District. I have a, like, people recognize me on the streets because of the shop, yeah. because of bikes, not because of anything. Well, you to probably do. have, I don't know, you want to use the word fans, but people who follow you around the world at this point. I mean, I want to back up and get to, because, well, let's just, let's just get there right now. Right. Your story is remarkable because of an accident that happened. And it, it's like a bad thing that happened to you. And, and it's how you've, and again, I have never met you until today. I mean, other than that one time, but this is our first time to really sit down and, and get a chance to to talk. You know, just like an, as an outsider looking in, it seems that 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 crash sets your life in this direction that's actually pretty cool. Like, I mean, it gave you this family and this community. So I, before we get to the, the accident itself, I actually wanted to, if you could just give me a brief snapshot of like, because I know you were a commuter cyclist and like, what were you in the cycling community? Like, what was your... You mean before the yeah, crash? Yeah, before okay. the crash. So yeah. a, a year, about a year or a year and a half before my family and I, and my family then was myself, Ariel Ross, my wife, and uh, Mark, our, our son, who was uh, four when we moved to Stillwater. But a year before we made that move, I had started riding my bike to Lowe's in Atlanta because I was working as an employee of Lowe's just to make money while my uh, wife and I tried to figure out how to land jobs um, yeah. in a you know economy <laughs> that wasn't well designed for people with comparative literature degrees and lots <laughs> of debt. Um, so I was working at Lowe's uh, full time to try to pay the bills and keep the lights on while my wife and I were scrambling to finish our degrees and begin to apply to a very bad job market. And we only had one car and we had a small child. And I was like, I can't leave you with no car all day for it just to sit in the parking lot of Lowe's. So I started commuting in Atlanta largely at a necessity, just okay. not being able to take justify taking the car to sit in a parking lot at Lowe's all day while my wife and son didn't have one, yeah. especially in a very car centric city like Atlanta. So I was actually gifted a bike um, by a professor of mine. It was a, a lady's bike, an old Trek. And she was like, I'm not using this. You should have it. Um, and I rode that back and forth to work and commuted on it. Um, so I had started kind of commuting. I had tried to buy what I thought was a hip looking bike. And it was like a old Columbia shadow that weighed a ton and the brakes were complete garbage. And I mm. bought that from a pawn shop in Atlanta before I left the city. And I brought it with me to Oklahoma and tried to ride that to campus. But it was a really crappy bike. I remember it was the first bike I ever took into district to have them look at. And I was like, can you make these brakes work better? And it was the <laughs> response that we've given to so many customers since. Not really. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, we can give you new brakes. Um, but anyway, I had a roommate at the time who moved with us from Atlanta named John Steen. 
And he went to grad school with us in Atlanta. He got a job here the same time I did. And we lived together in a house. He had like an apartment adjoined to our house. And he was a, is a really serious cyclist. He was a really accomplished bike rider, not in terms of events or anything like that, but just in terms of daily commuting yeah. and fitness, he was a cyclist. And he helped me buy my first bike. He found it at a used bike store in Wichita, my 1989 uh, Koga Miata Prologue. He's the one who found me that bike. Okay. He brought it to me on my birthday and he was like, you just pay half it. I'll pay the other half. And he bought half of it for me. And three months later, that was the bike that I was commuting on when I got hit. So we had just okay. started going to Tulsa and getting on the Greenway. And I had just started thinking about like trying to become a cyclist. I had just yeah. given up smoking cigarettes after being a cigarette smoker for over a decade. Wow, I had finally nice. quit when we moved to Stillwater, I was like, cause I had nobody to smoke with and it was really smoking by myself. I was like, this is depressing as fuck. You're literally just doing this just for this. And yeah. so that's when I was like, you need to quit smoking. Plus I started, it gives you like a, a reason, a physical reason yeah. to quit so you can do the activity you like to do better. Yeah. Like, and I was like, ever since I had a kid, I was like, once I had a kid, I was like, you need to give this up. Right. This is not good. And but it I was, gave up motorcycles. Yeah. You know, having kids makes you think about your yeah. mortality. I'm like, dude, I don't, need, I don't need to die on a motorcycle. Right. Right. <laughs> I have different responsibilities now. So anyway, I had been trying to get more fit and just starting this process of like riding to Boomer Lake. And then I would run a 5K around the lake and get back on my bike and ride home. And I used to think of that as like a serious physical endeavor. Hey, uh, back, it is. I mean, yeah, but, but back then that to me was like, I was really stoked on myself for doing that. So I had just started this journey of giving up cigarettes, riding for fitness and beginning to run. And I was still commuting on that bike. And that's when I got in the accident. And so yeah. I had just kind of started identifying with cycling as like a lifestyle right when the accident happened. And I feel very grateful, in fact, that the community around District Bicycles kind of adopted me in a way after that accident and allowed me to keep growing that investment. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. Are you comfortable talking about the accident? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean... We rode by, I asked you if we could ride by where it happened because we're only, I don't know, half a mile or yeah. so, a mile away from uh, where where the accident took place. But yeah, why don't you just kind of share what happened? It's pretty crazy, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's it was pretty very severe. It was a severe accident, um, but it was a very mundane circumstance. Right. You know, I was just riding down the right side of the road, doing what I was supposed to do, and a car was traveling the opposite direction. And according to his statement, he just literally did not see me riding down the road on his bike. So he turned across my lane and I think I slammed on my brakes to avoid the collision and ended up flipping over my bars. I think hitting my cheekbone on the road, which is what crushed my skull. But then he actually drove over my uh, midsection with the front of his car, breaking my pelvis in half, uh, fracturing four vertebra, fracturing my tailbone. It ruptured my duodenum. So my whole body cavities started filling with the intestinal. Your duodenum is like the junction box between your stomach and your intestine. Okay. And so when you rupture it, all that bile and all that digestive uh, fluid okay. and all that toxic gut juice that digests your food, it starts coating your, your organs and okay. it starts causing systemic organ failure. So that was, I mean, I had a lot of trauma, like facial trauma and, a, and bruising on the brain and a broken pelvis and the fractured vertebra. But the most dangerous part of my injury was the intestinal fluid that was in my body cavity they had to leave me open on a table for about three days while they monitored my organs the first time so my wife, they could like access yes, them quickly they didn't even show me up for three days because they, they left me open under a translucent blanket <sighs> the first time my wife saw me i was my 
body cavity was open beneath a blanket. Did she's she like, look? I, no. She's okay. like, I, I could see that you were open, but I just looked. No. Yeah. It's like when my wife gave birth, I'm like, no, I'm not. I'll stay up here. Yeah. I mean, one of the <laughs> difficulties of an event like this, you, you'll learn if you ever have the misfortune of going through it is that, I mean, cause I, I don't have a lot of direct memories of the immediate aftermath of the accident. I repressed most of it, but my wife didn't, you know, she has memories of seeing me in that condition. I don't have a lot of memories of being in that state, but she remembers seeing me that way. And it's, it's a very weird experience where I had to, like you it's easy to describe the horrificness of it as have someone who's gone through it but doesn't remember it. Yeah. And it's a very different experience for someone who saw it happen to someone very close to them but yeah. doesn't have the benefit of repression. Yeah, it's very... Was it difficult for her to see you get back on a bike? Was it um, more... I, now I'm wondering, I was going to ask you if it was hard for you to get on a bike, but which I still would like to know, but it was. I it, could see it being like doubly hard for her. Uh, I, I'm sure, I think it's actually probably been harder for her to see me get back on the bike in the way that I have than it was for me. I think at first, especially cause I had a son who was just learning to ride a bike when I had my accident, like he had had his first tumble off his strider, like two weeks before where he had been trying to go down a hill for the first time. And he took a tumble and went OTB and scraped up his lip and it was kind of dust. So I had to rush him home to make sure, but it was just a facial abrasion. It was nothing serious, but it was one of those moments where you're like, Oh my God, I just hurt my kid encouraging yeah. him to ride down this hill. And that had just happened to him. And then I had this horrific accident, which he didn't really understand because he was only four, but he nonetheless could perceive that something terrible was going on. And it felt when I, especially once I got home and cause I, I mean, my, we had a lot of visible reminders of my accident because I had to wear an eye patch for a year and a half and my eyes were crossed from my yeah. head trauma for a really long time. It took many surgeries to get my eye, my vision corrected. So my son had this daily physical reminder of this head trauma right in his face. And it felt very important to me that he saw me try to get back on the bike. I kind of, it wasn't like I immediately was like, I'm going to become an endurance cyclist. I was just like, I just don't want you to see me like give something up that I was Right. Encouraging you to do and saying that this was healthy and good and you should do this. Like I wanted it's him to see me get back on that, the bike. That I mean, even at that point, because you were just kind of emerging on like your cycling journey, let's say, like really getting into cycling, but you probably weren't like all the way in. I don't know, because you were no, saying you're just yeah. kind of getting into it. Yeah. And so, but you you got hit and that would scare a lot of people, I think, and maybe like, fuck that, you know. But you were you were like, no, man, I'm not. I kind of did the opposite. I think yeah. I like instead of it becoming it. exactly yeah. like, or I mean, I wanted to like, yeah, I you don't didn't want to live in the fear of yeah of that for the rest of your it life. It almost maybe. felt like a form of stubbornness or like a, a form of defiance to yeah. be like, I'm not going to let this. I mean, what we call an accident, even though I feel like that's not the great word, but there's not a better word for it because it was just kind of. I mean, the collision sounds so much stranger to say, but like, yeah, I just, there was a, there was an element of stubbornness to it or defiance. But I remember at the time, my thinking was a lot about my son. I was like, I want him to see me try to get back on the bike and not live in fear, you know, and not to say like, I mean, the first time we rode was with him. I, I, he went with me to district. I carried the bike to the shop. I said, Hey, I don't know if this bike is ruined or not because the chain was just off and no one had really touched the bike since the accident, yeah. but it wasn't destroyed or anything. And I took it and within 45 seconds, Bobby Wintel had the chain on. And he's like, dude, it was just a misaligned handlebar and the chain was off. And that was it. He's like, it's fine. Yeah. And I was like, sweet. And I took it out of the shop 
And I remember we got over. So Duck I mean, Street. you you really went over the bars, and the the bike didn't sustain it, it, much damage. It went damage. out from under me. Yeah, the you, bike didn't get run over. I have a little dent on one of the rear chainstays where it initially happened, but no, the bike the bike was unscathed. It was nearly unscathed. Yeah. So what injuries did you sustain, and what was that recovery process like? I know it was pretty grueling. The skull fracture was a really big deal because it went from about the middle of my forehead all the way to the base of my nose. Like that's how much broke. They had to remove all the sinuses on the right side of my head. So I don't have any sinuses on the right side of my head. All of that was collapsed in on itself and removed. My orbital socket was completely crushed and had to be reconstructed with metal plates. And then there was the bruising on the brain that occurred when your skull crushes and didn't sit on it. Fortunately, because I had a helmet, like, and that's what all, I mean, every surgeon said, if you had not been wearing a bike helmet, there's no way you would have gotten off that road, right? Because it limited the amount of trauma your brain sustained. You got a big bruise, but it, the swelling went down. What happens at a certain point, they tell me, is when the brain hemorrhages, when it receives too much trauma, like all the cells that are supposed to be inside your brain start kind of pouring out. It's almost like a, a, a floodgate in a dam or something like that. And once there's a big enough crack, they start... And that's when serious brain damage occurs. And they're like, and your trauma was just below that threshold where that hemorrhage never really occurred, um, which is what allowed me to rehabilitate. But my vision, um, because the damage went deep enough, the, the nerves that control the lateral motion of your eyes side to side, they cross behind your eyes. So the nerve that controls your left eye is actually behind your right eye. So when my right side was crushed, my left eye became completely paralyzed in the corner of my eye socket. Okay. And eventually when enough healing happened, I was able to train it to pull it out just a bit. But if I pulled it out, the other eye would fall in. Oh. And it was just nerve damage. It was like the nerves were completely paralyzed and forever damaged. So what they have to do is literally snip the muscles because you have four muscles around your eyes that control it like the cardinal points on a compass, north, south east west and that's what controls your eye movement and they have to snip those muscles and surgically reassign them to straighten your eyeballs that's your amazing yeah. but i have no peripheral vision in my left eye i can't move it further than center because so that's not great being a cyclist it may, it's it's been a challenge actually especially riding trails like you know i do not have i have no peripheral vision on my left side so to see to make a left turn I have to pivot my whole head to see where I'm turning. So, yeah. and I was even thinking cars yep. because cars are always on your left. That's exactly where cars pass me. I have right. No peripheral vision on the side where the traffic is always coming. Yeah. Man, so I'm curious, like where you stand, or maybe even like what the process you went with through of like anger, resentment being pissed off at the dude that hit you, or the I, I believe it was a guy that it hit was. You. It was a male. I never met him. I remember being asked if I wanted to meet him when I first got back to Stillwater. I think Ariel, his parents had been in touch with um, Ariel on via cell phone and they had said he wanted to meet me and I really wasn't ready because I was very disfigured, you know, like I couldn't hold my head straight. Like I had to hold my head to a side to like walk in a straight line. And I don't know, I just felt very, I don't know, I felt very grotesque. And I was like, I don't really want to meet anybody new right now. And, and I didn't really want to see him. But I remember distinctly, and this was in rehab, when I first started becoming like fully conscious of my body and the situation that I was in, it wasn't really until I was discharged from the ICU that I have any coherent memories. But I remember really being in rehab, kind of like giving away my anger at the kid. Like I just, I was like, you have to let this go now before you even leave here. Like I just kind of kept trying to remember. And I think maybe 
being a professor at OSU helped like a professor who taught mostly freshmen because mm-hmm. I knew his age and I was like, he's one of your students, like picture those children in your classes. And that's who he is. Like he, he's just a, he's a child, you know what I mean? And he, this yeah. is probably going to ruin his life, you know, just as much as yours, you know? Um, did, did he, were there repercussions for him legally? He, he got a $75 failure to yield ticket. I okay, see. It. That's the kind of shit that like, pisses you off well right? and i when you talk about I mean, anger I, I think, i'm internalizing yeah. that for myself but i'm curious no I, I don't think that's that that's not inaccurate for me either i don't think my anger isn't so much now directed at the young man who made the mistake and ran me over but now like now that i understand the long-term percussions of that accident because it's i thought that the medical journey was over a year and a half in but now i'm realizing after I've now been diagnosed with epilepsy seven years after the accident because of the head trauma I've sustained, I'm like, oh, it's not over. Yeah. And now I have daily medi- monthly medications that I need, and I have neurologist appointments that I have to go to, and I now have a therapist to help me deal with some of this stuff. And all of these expenses are things that, like, the lawsuit is over. That's That was decided eight years ago. Yeah. And now I'm still living with these daily expenses. And that part angers me. Like, there's systemic... And when I was dealing with the legal... Ca- I mean, I did not get... I mean, I, I got $5,000. Whoa. Our settlement was, because, I mean, they, or no, sorry, I got $15,000. Still. Yeah, $15,000, but I. That's nothing. I know, I know. It was, we, <laughs> they liquidated his insurance policy, which was valid, was valued at fifty grand, and that, that was the dissolution of my legal case, was they dissolved his insurance policy, which was valued at fifty grand, and that was split three ways evenly. My lawyer. Blue Cross and Blue Shield and me. Yeah. And I mean, really, the person who lost in all this financially is Blue Cross and Blue Shield because my care total after a year and a half was over $900,000. Jesus. $900,000. It was almost a million dollars it took to put my body back together. <sighs> yeah. And they paid that. Like, that money came from Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Like, well, and so they had it. Well, you know what I mean? Like, in what, and it, that's something too. Like, especially in the last three years, I have become a lot more sensitive and aware of what people go through who have things like this happen to them who don't have insurance. Cause if it would have happened to me a year prior in Atlanta, I wouldn't have had that insurance. Yeah, I don't have insurance. Exactly. You know what I mean? And like, <laughs> yeah, I'm hearing this and I'm like, $940,000. Yeah. That was the total. And that was not, that's not even including since epilepsy. I'm sure you're familiar with the local news article that was written mm-hmm. about you. It's yeah. actually a really good. Did you like the article? I mean, did you think which they one did? is it? The news press one? Uh, I actually wrote it down. Yeah, Stillwater News Press. Is this was like right after the accident? I don't, like, I don't know when exactly they wrote it, but it was a. I mean, they talked about Bailey. They like talked oh, okay. To, no, this is this, this is, is oh yeah. Yeah, so yeah, this, this is, was this. Sorry, they, it must be because they were talking about yeah. uh, Tour Divide and all that. This stuff. is this is the article that was written about my Tour Divide run, and it was yeah. kind of telling the backstory. Yeah. The, the news press did run an article the day after my accident, which I never really read, which was apparently really graphic, which was like celebrating details of like the state my body was in and where the blood was. And my wife actually had to write the news press and say, this seems a little insensitive. Could you tone down on the details? Like we're all, we, we still have to live here and stuff. Yeah. And, and they were, and they apologized to her because huh. they had actually gone it's out of so, their way to it's, I don't want to. Uh, let's let's tell this other one I'm mad yeah, about. That one is a good article. That was actually very I, well written. I think it's yeah. well written, but this stands out to me. And I wonder if this bothers you or if I'm just whatever. But uh, so they say Wood, an English professor at Oklahoma State University, commuted to work from campus on his 1989 Koga Miata, a steel road bike. 
So we know who is writing what. One day during Wood's second semester at OSU as he biked to work, so again, you're riding your bike to work, a silver infinity pulled into his lane and headed to a parking lot on 1574. So we don't know that a person was driving this vehicle. Yeah. yeah. We don't know that the person hit you when they turned into. Reminds me of a police report that say the gun went off, right? It it speaks to what you're saying. It's like accidents happen, and I don't know. I mean, don't want to get in all the cell phones and all the distracted driving. I mean, that's a that's a huge issue. Um, but what's really what has really really bothered me in incidences like this is the reaction from, you know, the community. I mean, I I read um, you know on Facebook whenever people get killed in you know in College Station, people will just go off and be like, you know, you shouldn't be riding a bike. You sure. know, you got a wife and kids at home yep. and you're riding a bike on roads like serves them right yeah like that kind I'm of i'm sure stuff. there were comments like that yeah, I, mean, I mean i don't i wasn't obviously paying attention and i wouldn't even right after read them but sure. they make you just it's disgusting yeah you know no. I, mean, I mean i think there's a we're real, talking about human life here there are serious problems of representation when it comes to acknowledging the victims of our automobile culture like i just had a very very close friend killed by a car not two blocks from where i was run down she she was an employee at the hospital she was working a late shift because of COVID. She was parking her her car across the street from the hospital mm-hmm. in an unlit area because of COVID, because of overwhelm. And she was walking across the street and she got hit by a car and killed. And it, it just that was the beginning. That's how this year started for me. Yeah. And that happened three blocks from where I was run down. And you know, and it's just in 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 the wake of her what her accident. That's what we call it. Her accident, right? It's like her, like it belongs to her. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that took away her life. You know what I mean? But what other word do we have? That's the thing is that we her don't shitty even fate. That's this thing her, is that we like, don't have a noun untimely. to refer yeah. to that, of uh, that type of event. That's interesting. And there's, that's not an accident. You know, it's not an accident. We don't have nouns for things that we don't want to identify, you know? Well, I've never thought about that. Yeah. Why don't we just it's, come up with a word and then associate not, a, a penalty for it? Call it a crime. You know, we name things all the time, like because genocide. It's we not, invented it's that not word. an accident. Yeah, no. it's it's somebody doing something wrong yes. that causes somebody's life to end. It's not an accident. It is. It's a cause. It's something caused that to happen. Vehicular assault. Just if anyone's out there listening and yeah. have any power, that that's a good one. Vehicular assault like or vehicular manslaughter, manslaughter or vehicular homicide. Yeah, I feel like those are categories that maybe we should explore these days that people are using cars more and more as weapons of mass destruction. I would love it if everybody who got a driver's license uh, was required to ride a bike around their city, you know, a few times and understand what it's like to have a car like whiz right past you or whatever. So this is what I'm getting at, like all this stuff that we're talking about, and we could talk about this for a while, right? Um, But I mean, what do you do with all that? Like, how did you overcome that part of it? Or is it just like, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm upset right now. Maybe it's just yeah. something as a cyclist, we just kind of, we, we work to make better and we talk about it and hopefully people in their local areas are doing things. I don't know. I'll say maybe when I, at the time of the accident in 2013, let's just name the year. So it was, it was the, it yeah. was February of 2013 that yeah. I was hit. And at that time, I don't think I was aware enough about cycling or about cyclist culture. You know what I mean? Like I, I kind of identified with it and I was beginning to appreciate it, but I didn't know a lot about it. I didn't have a lot of literacy 
riding or meeting other riders or kind of knowing how people talk about bikes. So I, what I mean is that I don't think I was as burdened with these issues of representation then as I am now. Um, then I remember feeling like I couldn't identify with the face that I was seeing in the mirror anymore. I would look at my own and I had scars all down my face. My head was shaved. I mean, I, I looked like Frankenstein. I remember the first time I managed to limp out of my bed in the ICU and limp to the bathroom to go to the bathroom in my own power. Um, not using a bedpan and I turned on the light and looked in the mirror and it was like one of those scenes from a movie like Vanilla Sky or something like that. It's just this kind of profound looking at your reflection and being like, oh, this is my face now. Because you've seen the same face your whole life yeah, and exactly. now and you don't know the person you're looking at. If you've ever at. had an, an experience like this, you kind of, it, it is traumatic to lose your face because you do lose your face and you never... I can't. It's, it's what you identify yeah. with as being part of your identity. I don't. Every time I see my own reflection now, I see the signs of my facial reconstruction. I don't see your my face, face looks great, by the way. It does. I don't and know even, what it looked like before, but well, even the surgeons when I came back for follow ups, they're like, "Honey, they're like, I know that you are sensitive about the scar, but they're like, this is miraculous healing." Yeah. Like the even the people who put I do want together were shocked. I do want to give a shout out to the medical staff. I don't know, uh, but I mean, it seems like they did a bang up job OU medical you. center in Oklahoma city is yeah. one of the best hospitals in the country. And I'll also give him since I'm in a podcast that actually has a big listenership. Dr. Bradley Ferris at the Dean McGee eye Institute is the man who fixed my eyeballs, um, after numerous surgeries. And I have to say that like halfway into my relationship with him, he stopped charging me for his labor. This is probably one of the top five eye surgeons in the entire country. Uh -huh. And he stopped charging me for anything because uh -huh. he, was so kind of, I don't know, moved by my accident. He started serving me pro bono. Wow. And he actually fixed my eyes, which doesn't happen to everybody who has this happen to. Some people live with double vision their whole lives with yeah. an injury that I had. So it doesn't always work that they fix it. So, Well, I'm glad that you made it through yeah. that with, I mean, I know you're still dealing with it and stuff. And Well, um, what I mean is that in the immediate, I think physical you know, rehabilitation was my main focus. I was like, I need to walk yeah. again. I need to straighten. I need oh, to for sure. straighten my eyes out. I remember taking my iPad. Yeah, you have real night. world problems oh, yeah, that you're I mean, dealing that, with. A lot of that. Other than like worried about what someone said on Facebook. But the <laughs> anger about the representation thing, that's what I've had to live with longest. Yeah. Long after I got over the physical rehabilitation part, um, I think that that anger and that frustration about representation, especially when it gets, when those wounds get reopened, like losing my friend at the beginning of the year, yeah. that, that trauma was tied to my own in a very profound way. That's hard for me to even talk about. And so, yeah, anytime something like that happens or anytime like you, I read one of those stories from afar on like bike law or Facebook. I read about someone getting hit by a car or run over, you know, and then listening to the way people talk about it, it does anger me. It yeah. like really gets under my skin and I do take it personally. Yeah. yeah. Well, more people on bikes, hopefully. I mean, yeah. put a positive spin on it. Sure. You know, the pandemic got a lot more people out on bikes and uh tell you what i just read it wrote a, a surly big easy yeah uh, which uh has the turbo booster on yeah, it baby and uh dude i can tell you that's going to get more people out on bikes and love or hate e-bikes i i want less cars i want less people getting hit by cars and if it, if e-bikes are one way to get people off of a i even heard in europe somewhere and this isn't approved but it was a bill that was passed where they would pay you three thousand dollars to get rid of your car and and get an e-bike or yeah. something like that I think e-bikes are are the way i think at first i took a very 
like I say at first, like, you know, maybe a few, a few, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like why not pedal? Yes. But yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it's like how I was with gears. Like we got gears, you fucking single speeders. Yeah. And now I like love single speed, you know, it's an interesting analogy. I think the thing that really turned my perception of e-bikes was going to the tour divide in 2018. And when I went up to Banff and Canmore to realize that, because this was different from 2016 when I was in Banff to 2018, yeah. one of the biggest changes I saw in Canada was scores of people who were 50 years and older riding between Banff and Canmore on those paved bike trails on e-bikes, just yeah. flying. <laughs> and I was like, these senior citizens right. are doing their errands. Like mm -hmm. normally they'd be getting on this highway and driving cars, but instead they're like, oh, it's 10 miles by e-bike. And it was seen that. I was like, oh, e-bike, this is the way. Like yeah. this is how to yeah. get rid of our car problem. I feel like that has been the evolution of most people that I talk to is at first it's this like elitist purist view of like, no way, keep it pure. And and maybe there's places e-bikes should and shouldn't go and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I know there's a big discussion about that, but I'm talking about like around town, just getting people off of cars and especially on bikes. In, in, especially and old people, like when yeah. I'm old, God damn, give yes. me one of those e-bikes. Yes. Or even, I mean, <laughs> or with like, kids. This dude. is why the Big Easy is so interesting. Yeah. Like you could put multiple kids on the back two of Two daughters. Or, yeah. yeah. I mean, Go you do could, groceries. You could run a small handyman service off a of Big Easy because yeah. that bike, like riding that bike around with the e assist, it feels like a normal bike, even when you're carrying 300 pounds of load. Um, when no, so, I, mean, I just I, I want to say I just rode it. Uh, uh, I had to. I, fucking forgot one of my cables and so you let me go uh ride it so on the way there i did it on like the low eco mode because uh, I, I haven't that's only the second time i've ever ridden an, an e-bike when i was in uh interviewing uh lael um rue was on an e-bike and she was like you want to ride this i'm like but i only rode it like a couple hundred feet or oh, whatever nice. um but anyway so i i did it on eco all the way there and then on the way back i put it on turbo and i was like all right baby let's open this yeah. thing up yeah. it's pretty awesome no i mean with with the ESS cargo bike you don't need a car in a town like stillwater yeah. i even like months ago started obsessively using this hashtag get a fucking cargo bike for right. exactly that and the, the reason i'm i've gotten some flack for the swearing in a hashtag which i think is kind of amusing but part of the reason <laughs> for swearing is the urgency that i do think that there is an urgency to like get away from this mine is go ride your damn bike that's yeah, my tag. exactly like, there like there they're, is they're, an urgency to it like yeah. and i think cargo bikes especially have this ability to replace a lot of the work we're making automobiles doing in small towns like Stillwater. We don't need as many cars going around doing errands as we could do on an e-cargo bike. Yeah. Obviously we need cars to carry and do some things, but not as many things as we're making them do. How, how much is that bike? I'm curious. Do you know? The that big, big easy? easy? Yeah. I think it's about five grand. Okay. So it's the price of a car. Yeah. It's I mean my, a cheap my van ass car. A well my van ass. was five thousand yeah. dollars. So I mean yeah. I'm a cheap ass. <laughs> well, I mean a car that you're gonna have to invest in. You know what I mean? If you spend five thousand dollars, like what I mean is that you're gonna have to put money into that car, oh, you yeah. know, on a year. Like but whereas you make that investment in a big easy and all you need to do is plug it into an electrical socket. Yeah, once that's a sweet. Week. I really want one. And yeah, that and keep the chain loose. You get sponsored by Surly. Yeah, man. So fill in the gaps for me. This is what I think I know is that in 2013, after your accident, or maybe it was in 2014, Bobby Wintel, it was the first year of Land Run, which is now Mid-South, that they donated the uh, some of the proceeds to uh, your recovery? Yes. Yeah, so when I was unconscious in the ICU after that collision, the first Land Run ever happened. Right. I didn't know about it in the lead up to it. So when I kind of came to in rehab and I was 
coherent enough to ask my wife, like, because I remind you, like, I was the only one who had the university job at the time. I'm the one who had money in his bank account. My the rest, my wife was broke. Like we were, <laughs> we had no money when we moved to Stillwater, Stillwater. So I suddenly was like, oh my God, what are you doing for money? Like, what, how are you, you know? And she was like, it's okay. These bike people showed up, you know what I mean? And that's suddenly when I became aware of district, she was like, yeah, like these people donated all this money to your recovery fund. Cause there was this race that was going on and they've been bringing us food and they gave us money and all these donations. And I was like, oh, wow, like incredible. And that was that was the first time that I'd ever heard about this movement on the part of the cyclists in Stillwater to like help support my recovery. Right. And so that was kind of the first I heard about it was just the money they raised at the raffle. But after coming back to Stillwater, I mean, the first time I went downtown, we parked and I got out of my crutches and we were just taking a walk and um, Bobby Wintle approached me on the sidewalk and asked me if I was Seth Wood. And he's like, I'm Bobby. And then my wife by then had told me who he was, um, that he and his wife owned the local bike shop that had done the fundraiser for me. And, and we became, our families became friends. They had children that weren't the exact same age as our son, Mark, but, um, their daughter Emery was like just one year younger. And so we started hanging out at a community garden and our kids started riding bikes together. And, um, that's when Bobby told me about, gravel riding this was kind of my formal introduction to gravel he's like well hey i do this event where people ride bikes on gravel and i'm like that sounds fucking <laughs> stupid like why would anybody do that and but this this begin um i mean we met under these kind of so that that's kind of the interesting thing about your whole story right is that that was kind of, I mean, this accident happened and a guy you didn't, I mean, I think you were a customer at district and I had gone into district once one as a time because I couldn't get air in my tires. There you go. So, and then this, and, and Bobby just out of the blue does this like really kind act to a guy he doesn't know really. And, um, it really like sets your life on this like kind of interesting course. And it wasn't just that, but district, I mean, they, um, when I, when I, was like, yeah, I mean, maybe I'll try a gravel ride with you. They were like, okay. And they took a surly Krampus off their floor and they were like, take this home. They like literally pulled it off the rack and they're like, this is your size. Take this home with you. And I was like, I can't pay for a bike. They're like, it doesn't matter. Take it. And I was like, okay. And so I rode this <laughs> and I took a, a couple rides in the surly Krampus, which had a nice big fat wheel. And I, cause I, I had an eye patch on at the time. So yeah. I didn't have a lot of depth perception. So it helped to have the fat tire learning <laughs> to ride sure. like that. <laughs> But then, like, months later, they gave me a Salsa Warbird, like, one of the first generation, the the lemon-lime aluminum Salsa Warbird, like, the second one they ever came out with. Wow. When the bike was brand new, they gave me one at a Friday night social. They're like, hey, he doesn't know this is happening, but this is Seth's bike, and he's our new gravel grinder, and he's going to be part of our community. And so, like, when the first land run happened, I was unconscious in an ICU from having been run over by a car, and then... The following year, I rode and finished in my first century race with an eye patch on. on that, that warbird. is crazy. Yeah. How hard was that? Um, How was, hard was it to train and, and then actually do it? It was hard to train because I didn't know, I had no idea what riding 100 miles sounded insane. It, like at yeah. that time, it sounded incomprehensible. And Especially I had done on gravel. Some, that's an, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'd done some local road riding and been very uncomfortable in the rear end from that. And like I said, though, I had this roommate, John Steen, who was a cyclist. He kind of was a sort of, because he was living with, with us in our house, like he was kind of proximate to the whole tragedy of my accident and the uh, aftermath of it. Um, but he, I mean, he shepherded me through the whole ride. He did that century ride with me and he borrowed um, Crystal's uh, Trek Superfly, I think, to ride in the event. And he rode in front of me the whole race. I mean, I just kept John in my sights yeah. and... 
he and I rode together the whole time. And I, and what I, I mean, I don't think I would have finished if he wouldn't have been there kind of pacing me. And like, I used him to kind of yeah. pull me through the ride. I mean, your first century is very daunting. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a big deal. And I mean, especially coming from all your injuries and stuff that you were still, you were, you weren't recovered. You were no, still in the recovery exactly. process. And I didn't know what to expect physically. How I your what, body. I, yeah. I didn't yeah. know what it was going to do. And, um, I had made simple mistakes. Like I remember when I got to the finish line and, Bobby was ecstatic to see me and he gave me this huge hug and he's like, how do you feel? And I was like, dude, I think I feel fine. Everything feels okay. Except for, you know, my underwear kind of hurts. He's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, like, you know, the, the seams on my underwear are really digging. He's like, you're wearing underwear on your chamois. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, dude, you're not supposed to wear underwear under your chamois. I'm like, well, I didn't fucking know. So, so there were little things like that. You know yeah. what I mean? I never again wore tidy whities under a yeah. chamois during yeah. the century race, That's but so my funny. first one, oh, I've, yeah. I've, I've, I've had to have someone tell me that. And I've been passed on that torch. Too oh because, yeah. All the newbies. I'm like, you don't got underwear yeah. on under that. Right. And they're like, yes. And I'm like, take that shit off. And they're like, thank you. You know? Yeah. So yeah, I'm sure yeah. to tell everybody that bit. You yeah. Know, but, well, everybody's got to learn one way or another. Yeah. Yeah, do you, you know, I don't know Bobby Wintel too well. I've met him a few times. He, he obviously has a huge presence online, and, and the Mid-South has become hugely successful. It's neat to hear that in 2013, before, like, all the Mid-South happened and he really blew up, that, you know, the first year it happened, he was like, dude, we're going we're gonna to do this for you. And then, yeah. like, to just the community... Man, this it's just such a great community. I think it's a good. No wonder you fell in love with. Well, that's like what this, I mean. You know, you know like, it's I, like I how never, could you not? I had never met people like this. I, you know, I like I had had lots of experiences and known people, but I had never found myself just suddenly loved by a bunch of strangers. You know, who just, just I don't know. I, it wasn't exactly pity either. You know, like I didn't feel pitied by him. I didn't feel like uh, sort of. I don't know. It, it was. It's a, it it's wasn't really a charity. Hard. It was just like exactly. love. It was just. Or it's like, I. I mean, I think what that's it, a great what, distinction. Charity versus. It felt like being loved. It didn't yeah. feel like oh, these people are taking care of me when I can't take care of myself. Yeah. It's like these people are loving me, and I didn't even ask them to, and and I wanted to like reciprocate that. I wanted to. I. It made me want to give love. You know, yeah. it made me want to stick around and. But no. see, that's that is the nice thing about your accident is it gave this chance for the community to like showcase and like I don't know I mean it, it's how it's how um, I think we overcome all the negativity that we're talking about and all these things that bother us as cyclists greatly and so when you see one of like we don't I I know several cyclists that I don't really know but are there in the community that have died and you know I've been to the meetings at city council to like advocate on their behalf you know it's like you just feel like connected to them because we're all out there kind of together and it's like even if you don't know the person directly we there is a kinship there oh yeah the first serious bike ride that I took after my accident was a road ride it's a ride that they host annually. It's called the Deb Miller Memorial Ride. And actually, if you're leaving Stillwater on Highway 51, okay. heading west, you'll see a ghost bike out on Highway 51 right by the entrance. And that's where she was killed. She was hit by a motorist while she was riding on the, on the shoulder of that road, went into the ditch, and she was killed. And she yeah. was a local cyclist. She was a prominent member of the community, and she has a lot of family in the region. And every year, they host a memorial ride for her. And I, that happened in the summer after my accident. And I had been trying to rehabilitate over the summer. I went home to see family and I was trying to jog and get myself kind of in walking shape again. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I heard about that ride and I was like, I'm going to go there and do that. 
And I, I rode out to that ghost bike and I put my bike down on the side of the road and I walked up to the hill to where it's planted in the ground. And I, I had to put my hand on it. I felt like I had to touch that bike. And I like, I remember speaking to her like in her absence and I'm not even a super spiritual or person, but I, I did feel like I was doing something. There was some type of emotional labor that I was performing or some, something that I was leaving out there. I, I mean, you, you could have been killed. That's I mean, what I mean. You were, I was you like, were so, you were almost her, you know, I was you a, were almost a ghost bike. I was, a, that, and I'm not trying a, to like overinflate the no, situation. Like just factually, it was facts. Right. I mean, and when I woke up and part of this was like my first knowledge of my, the, the severity of my actions was from my doctors who, I mean, I had one surgeon who said, I have seen a list of injuries like this before, but I have never seen a list of injuries on a person that I can speak to. They're like, you need to feel very fortunate that you are still alive. They're like, nobody has as much, like people can survive the abdominal trauma. People can survive the head trauma. Very few people just survive both. So how do you feel? Do you feel lucky? How has it changed? Like your, I don't know your perspective. Cause I mean, my dad died at a young age and man, that, that hit me hard. Like he died at 58 working his ass off, never really enjoying life. Cause he just worked so hard. And I was like, dude, okay, that's not the way. Like we need to enjoy the life that we have while we have it. So anyway, I mean, it had to, it did. I mean, I think it really made me take stock of, I mean, I think it happens to everybody who has a sort of close encounter, close brush with death, you tend to retake stock of everything in your life and kind of rethink all the decisions that you've made. And I came out of it realizing that while I had invested most of my time and energy in terms of my own mind and in my education and in my own kind of intellectual development, I realized that year in 2013 that I had been kind of letting my relationships with people kind of suffer while I was honing my mind. You know what I mean? It kind of made me realize that I had regrets about my relationship with my son and my relationship with my wife. And I was like, and if you had died, there would have been no time to even be aware of those regrets, much less do anything about that's them. That's a chilling thought. Yeah, yeah, it is. It makes you, it makes you take a really kind of cold, hard look at yourself and wonder what's important. And in some ways, since the accident, I've actually found it more difficult to kind of care about the forms of like professionalization and the academic world that I was really, really like beholden to like when I got hit, they've been harder to, to commit to since. Cause I'm like, I maybe don't care about that as much as I used to. I totally sympathize with that. I'm not trying to be a total, total hippie, but I mean, life is short, life is precious. And what are you going to do with your time on this earth? You know, like, how are you going to f- live the fulfilling life that you want to have? Like, and, and prioritize those things, you know, and, and it's not, selling houses for me, you know? And when that happened to me, very few people in the English department that I had just called my new home, my, as they call it, your academic home. Yeah. Very few of them turned up at my house. One, in fact, and he gave me a book and he's like, Hey, I thought you might like this book based on your interests. And he moved away. And you know what? He was a cyclist, John Gilman, (laughs) who wrote the tour divide. And other than that, there was very little other contact, but the people who showed up, the people who poured love on my family and me not even knowing me, bike riders everywhere those are the people who turned up yeah it's amazing yeah and you kind of realize you're like oh so who would have been at my funeral were a bunch of strangers to me yeah right if that would have happened maybe i should become (sighs) friends with all these people yeah Yeah. so how i know that afterwards i read that you started to um volunteer to clean the bathrooms i think 
at district or something? Well, I mean, it was so district used to be located on main street and it was a much smaller shop. It was kind of like shotgun style where the shop floor was in the front uh, street side. And then there was kind of like a very small compartmentalized back room where all the storage was. And the bathroom was way in the back of the building, very hard to get to. And it was like a closet. It was like a linen closet that Mm. lots of, sweaty people used <laughs> for a bathroom um so there first of all it was an impossible bathroom to keep clean i just kind of felt like so indebted to the people of district that i just was desperate to find any thing that i could do to support the small crew of people that was running this shop that had done so much for me and my family so i was like you know what there's only, I mean, there were like three people who worked there, three or four people who worked there at the time. And like half of those people were part time. You know, two of them were students and two of them were married. You know what I mean? So it was like it was a very small group of people that was keeping district going in the first couple of years. And I was like, you know what? I'll clean the bathrooms after the Friday socials when they're all messed up. I'll, I'll do that. You know, I'll take that on me. And and then shortly after that, they moved to the new location. And I was able to volunteer to help them move all the bike racks and all the bikes. I was like, oh, no, I'll be there. I'll help you move all night. And I did. We stayed up all night one night trying to get the new shop set up. And and through that involvement, I just kind of like, I don't know, hung around in this part-time capacity that did kind of start as this more kind of custodial, I'll take care of the cleaning that no one else has the time to do. But I don't know. Like now, I don't know. My role at the shop is... I don't feel like that's all I do. Um, it's, I don't know, really. I felt just kind of fill in the holes, you know, um, that the shop needs filled, whatever that might be at the time. What, what is, uh, so you're still a professor? Yeah, still and, a full-time and professor. And you're also working at, because uh, I, I mean, you, like in the article I read about you and uh, Bailey, all were both employees at the shop at the same time yeah. and would get off work and go do these long rides yeah. and stuff. So, yeah, what do, what do you do at the shop? Um, well, currently I'm mostly assembling and revitalizing kids bikes. Um, we actually have got enough business going at the shop now that, I mean, cause we do a kid's bike trade-in program where after, yeah. if you buy a kid's bike at district, you can return that bike when the kid outgrows it to get the next size up. And usually when they return those bikes, they're in various states of disrepair. And we like to kind of tune them up and then sell them at a discounted price to someone who needs a, a cheaper price bike. So most of what I'm doing at the shop these days is assembling new bikes, kids' bikes out of the box and putting them on the racks and then revitalizing the old ones that come back in and putting them up for sale used. I also, I mean, and that the kids' bike thing has become more the focus since COVID because there's so few entry-level mountain bikes to build. But usually when there's lots of entry-level mountain bikes or entry-level hybrid-style bikes, like I'm building those those to keep the the shelves full, taking out the cardboard, recycling, emptying the trash... Um, also talking to customers on the floor, we try to district bicycles. One of the things we try to do is to like be hospitable to everybody that comes in the door and not necessarily just try to sell people things, but to give people conversation and knowledge. And I'm good at telling stories and my stories, my, my personal story has sold many bikes. At district bicycles. <laughs> Probably helmets. Yeah, no, I'm good at selling helmets. I'm good at selling cutthroats. Um, anybody, yeah. I got lots of store, like back when there were ample cutthroats in stock, I was yeah. very good at selling them because I've had lots of experience on them. It's a really cool shop, man. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with District because of the success of the Mid-South. But yeah, for people who aren't familiar with it, it's uh, a really nice building in historic downtown Stillwater. And 
they got the huge bay door and like I mean, we can actually look at it right here yeah. and there's always just cyclists hanging out there's always good good group of cyclists hanging out it's it's a really cool vibe for a shop and i'm curious what it's like to work there um i mean it's an honor really i think i mean even because of the weird i mean bike shops have been surge with business since the pandemic but we have fewer and fewer products to sell you know what i mean so it's a it's a difficult time uh for people who are employed in the bike industry because we have lots of customer demand that we actually can't you know as readily as we might want to so what i mean is that because i'm a part-time employee my hours have had to drop off somewhat in the pandemic i don't get to work at the shop quite as many hours as i used to and it really it, it was enough that it kind of got me thinking well like is this really worth it financially because you do i do have another job i'm a full-time university professor i have two kids yeah. I try to ride on my bike a lot my plate is full you right. know so it was like is this job really worth it and honestly i i could probably work at district one hour a week and i feel like it would still be worth it to me because of the i don't know it just it improves my quality of life. Like it makes me happy to be there. Even if I'm cleaning the toilets, even if I'm taking out the trash, I feel like it's a special place to be a part of. And I would be a part of it. Even if they didn't pay me to be a part of it, I would still, Well, you were exactly at first. You were just volunteering. I I, I just said, I'm just going to start coming. It was like a form of, it felt like a form of service. It felt like a form of community service. And I have a, a long history of community service and something that's always been important to me. And I feel like that's kind of what district has become in my time at Stillwater. It's the platform where I'm going to try to well, have let's some talk benefit. about that. I mean, in terms of district being a, a service to the community, how is the shop and all the success of district and mid South, I guess, like has the community really like supported that? Uh, and, I mean, and responded well here? to, yeah, the community here. Oh, yeah. like, so, I mean, I don't, I don't, yeah, the local, the local community, not sure. the cycling. I know the cycling community loves y'all, but well, I mean, yeah, the broader, I mean, I think district and mid south have a lot of sort of uh appeal and I would say cachet in the broader world and even internet in the international cycling scene, yeah. But I firmly believe that none of that, um, national or international renown or celebrity would be possible without the involvement of our local community you know what i mean the thing that's kept district bicycles alive as a bike shop are not the likes on instagram from all over the world but the people who come to the shop on the weekly and like buy bikes from us and buy custom builds and then trust us with custom builds and you know so i mean and there's so much enthusiasm and support on our local and our local cycling scene so much togetherness and family that i don't really see the success of mid south and district going on as it has without that local yeah you know, yeah i mean it's uh, yeah it's uh, there's something special in the water here it seems like there's a very healthy cycling community here was it always that way or what came first was it district created it and then they came or was it always here there were cyclists here um i mean the first bike that I think one of the first bikes that District Bicycle serviced was a was a bike that had already ridden the Tour Divide that had been in a box for a full year um, that had just ridden the Tour Divide by John Billman, who was a professor at OSU in the English department. So there are people who rode bikes here. Scott Nutt, who's one of our, um, you know, I mean, I almost called him our one of our favorite customers, but he's, he's a friend. He's a family <laughs> member. Scott Nutt's our boy. Uh, but he's ridden like, I think he's ridden like, over 40 ragbrais or something like that. You know what I mean? So there's been people, there's people here who've been cycling for a long time, um, 
who did Oklahoma Freewell a lot, but I think that there wasn't a place for them all to convene. There wasn't a place for them all to know to be. Um, and District Bicycles really became, I think, a hub for a lot of different cyclists and cycling ambitions that were very fragmented and that didn't have a shared space. It's a just, really good way to put it. Yeah. It's almost you know, like you created a home, you know, exactly. for, for and all And a the- part of it is how community centered the bike shop is. Even at the old shop, one of the features of the, that the old shop and the new shop have in common is a works area that's separated from the sales floor by a very low counter where there are stools so that customers are encouraged to sit down at a counter at waist height and look at the person who's working on the bikes and talk with them and meet them. Like there's always been a very social dynamic to the the way that the shop is organized. I think that has a lot to do too with uh, Crystal Wintle and her role in like designing the floor space of the shop. She's kind of constantly modifying and refining the actual layout of the shop. And I think that she's really good at creating spaces where people aren't just shopping and going to the register. But I actually think sometimes at district, if you sit in there long enough, you'll see that people don't know where to go when they buy. They pick something up and they want to buy it and they look around like, <laughs> where do I go to buy this? And it's like, good question. You don't know that, but if you would know exactly where to go if you wanted to talk to somebody. Yeah. You would know immediately visually where to go. Yeah. And that's because that's the first priority of our space. And so I think district became like a, a space where people who already had all this kind of passion and excitement for bikes could kind of dump their collective energy and it would stay there. Like they had that leather couch that's in the shop has been sitting there ever since they first opened. And man, if that, if the cushions of that couch could speak, you know what I mean? They would tell the story of lots of different Maybe we should have rides, interviewed rides. on that couch. I mean, that, that would have, <laughs> if, if I knew that there wouldn't have been so much noise no. in history, we would be there for sure. Yeah. 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 It's a, it, it is a, it is a pretty cool place. I mean, I was telling you, this is my first time to actually like visit Oklahoma um, proper. And so I've, I've been one of those internet likers and lurkers, you know, and obviously very aware of a lot of what y'all have going on. And like I've said, I've met Bobby a couple of times. I hear he's hard to pin down for an interview. <laughs> oh, I mean, probably just in terms of demand, but not, not in terms of willingness. I'm sure he, um, would be, uh, super excited. To I just hear sit he, down. he, uh, he doesn't sit still very long. Yeah, I mean that's actually maybe uh, I would recommend I maybe yeah getting in a van and you know recording with him on the move. Um, that might be a good idea. Yeah, well, we were talking earlier about um, I want to get set up so I can record while I'm riding. So maybe oh, yeah, like, that would be a good Bobby Wintle method. Just yeah. kind of leave him mic'd up for a yeah, full just day go and, and like ride yeah. around and chat and exactly. stuff. So yeah, no, I mean I don't. Uh, it, it's kind of it, it is fun because um, uh, I'm kind of getting to see behind and learn about you know. I don't know, a little bit of the secret of the success, a little secret sauce of what y'all got going on here. And I mean, um, it's been, like you said, I mean, internationally, uh, people are very familiar with district and it's like become, I don't know, like a, like the gold standard or a standard for what a bike shop could be and the type of community that it could create and the events that it could, you know, I mean, it's really like an example of what you can do with a bike shop and not just sell bikes or, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I think if I had to give a recipe for the success would be to celebrate every human who comes in your door, even if they have no experience or no money to spend celebrate every person that comes in your door and create a space where they feel welcome and they feel like they can contribute something and that's been the recipe for success at this 100 percent 
Yeah, I mean, with that mentality, you can't fail, really. Um, whenever I owned, I owned a retail business and I thought it was miserable. And I think even some bike shops are probably miserable to work in, you know, just because of the atmosphere. I'm not, I'm not thinking one in, in particular, but, um, yeah, the vibe there and everything is like, man, this could actually be like a fun place to work. I mean, the people that are coming in, everybody's smiling. They're like, there's a good energy there. Yeah. At some point. Uh, you get the wild idea to do the tour divide or how did that come on your radar? I mean, that Bobby Wintle is the answer to that question. He's who told me about that, right? Just like he told me about gravel riding. <laughs> Once I got my mind around that and I did a, I did a, I did his century ride. And then he was like, well, now there's this thing called the dirty Kansas, which is you did 100. Miles. So yeah, you could do 27 next step. And then, um, <laughs> and then after the 200 mile thing, I was kind of like, well, what's next? And he was like, oh, well the tour divide is next. And I was like, what's that? You know? And, so for me, like the Tour Divide was initially pitched as basically a long ass gravel ride, which I kind of think it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? A multi-day gravel event. And I was like, that sounds cool. Um, at, but the way that I was thinking of it was a long ass bike ride. A tour. Um, yeah. But I didn't. But the, calling it a tour, though, I think maybe in 2016 when I first did it, I was a little bit naive about the touring aspect of it. I knew how to ride a bike, but. I didn't have a lot of literacy, like using camping equipment or sleeping outside. Like I wasn't afraid of it and I was willing and I had tested my gear enough to know how to use what I brought responsibly, right. but I, I wouldn't describe myself now as competent then. I didn't quite know what I was doing. Um, I just thought it was a really, really long bike ride, which so it sounds was. like you and Bailey went in with similar. No, I was re-listening to Bailey's yeah interview <laughs> and I was like, oh man, we were, cause I mean, I mean, it was me. I mean, we all went up in a in an RV together. It was me, Bailey, Bobby Wintle, uh, Troy Cowan, Jesse Ramsey, you know, I mean, Dave Martman. There was a whole wow. crew of us who all went up together who were all complete novices. And we had no experience. We were all in way over our heads. Um, and But we all just went out there and we all finished. Like we oh, all wow. got it done that year. That um, was like nine people? Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's a picture of us all standing together on a dock oh, man. with Lake Louise behind us. And if you look at the picture now, I think all of us would feel like, look at those babies. You know, we look, you know, like younger versions of ourselves oh, now. For sure. But that whole lineup of people finished the Tour Divide wow. in the year where there is because in 2016, that was the lowest attrition rate of any Tour Divide ever. That was. The, oh, really? Yeah, 2016. Oh, the gee, lowest I didn't know that. Year, but that's the year Mike Hall set his record, too. Interesting. Man, so you were there for the Mike Hall record. I ate lunch with Mike Hall before he started that run. Yeah. I ate dinner with him with the people because he was hanging out with the salsa people and the salsa people knew Bobby and I was with Bobby. So how cool is Mike Hall? Uh he didn't say a word. Really? He sat back in his chair and he looked like a man who was in a different place. I kind of looked at him and I was like, this man is not in this conversation at this. I mean, there were, he was nice. He, I'm not saying he was, but... But he was like in a zone. He, like was, he was focused I, I, on the I task. I recognize now that look in his face. I know exactly what he's feeling now. Now that I've done this ultra endurance thing a little bit longer, he was focused. He was already on the ride. He was already started in his mind. He was not, he was not eating dinner. He was not... Yeah, he wasn't thinking about anything except the ride. And so he just wasn't... He's like, yeah, yeah, nice to meet you, nice to meet you. But he was not present. He was... In his own head. Yeah, about that's interesting. It's not do. surprising to hear. No, because he I knew mean, exactly what he was going to do. Th- yeah, he 
he he knew what was coming yes. up. You didn't know. You were stupid. I mean, oh, you no, were no, no, no. I you were like, stupid. You were ignorant to what was about to happen. He I think was fully, fine. Yeah, he no. was fully aware yes. of what he was about to put his body through, his mind through, and that's daunting. Even if you're Mike Hall, I don't care who you are. If you're you're about, I mean, especially if you're Mike Hall, if you're planning on sleeping and eating and all that kind of stuff. I guess you're out there longer, so maybe it's harder in that way. But yeah, in terms of pushing yourself, that's got to be a scary and a daunting thing yeah. to to do that, you know, I would think. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I feel like it. I've never had this experience myself. Yeah. I feel like it has to be analogous <laughs> to being in one of those planes or ships when you're about to be dropped off into a war zone. You know what I mean? You know what you're about to encounter. Right. You know what you're about to see, but you have no idea the particular way that it's going to how unfold. it's going to unfold. Yeah. So you know exactly what you're in for, but you have no idea how it's going to happen. How did, how did your 2016 unfold? Um, it was interesting. Um, at first, well, first of all, the, the reason there was such a, a bad attrition rate that year is because the first week was wet. We were soaking wet for a week and that was just a very demoralizing and degrading experience. Like I lost my external battery cache on the first day. Grit was everywhere. I mean, it was just a very, wet wet beginning yeah. um slogging through all those miles through canada and montana in the cold and in the rain was was kind of miserable but after that once you kind of dried out um i felt like i had a pretty decent time of it bobby and i got into got in over our heads a couple times got into a couple spots where we had you know pr where i missed a turn and we probably should have stopped sooner you know we got in we got in a couple hairy spots but for the most part i think we we kept our heads up. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we got lost. I, I walked through a scary hike a bike on Lava Mountain in the middle of the night when I shouldn't have. And he came <laughs> after me and we, we had scary moments. But for the most part, we we always kind of came back for them and we always laughed. And uh, did you do it in a group together? It was interesting. I know so, Bailey did his. Uh, well, Bailey was gone. Yeah, we, he was gone. Uh, yeah, after but... day one, we did. We hung out with Bailey the morning of, and then we didn't see him ever yeah. again. And the whole time we were, we couldn't believe that he finished in sub 20 days at the time that he did we were just blown away at what he did that year. I mean, he left without rain pants on and it was right. for a week. He just <laughs> rode in his chamois. I still don't know how he did that, but, um, so he was gone, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Like I felt like Bobby and I had kind of made this agreement that we were going to do it together. I don't think we understood at the time how challenging that is to commit to doing a ride like that together. Right. Like I don't even, I'm not even sure now how we managed to do it. Like I think that was probably the most amazing thing about that first finish is in that, terms of like he could have a mechanical or he could be having a bad day. You could be having, and yeah, just like staying yeah, on the same rhythm you, exactly. for 2,700 And we miles. weren't always together. It's not like we sure, rode side by yeah. side, but we slept in the same spots every night. We yeah, woke that's up hard to do. It's very hard to do. Yeah. And I think it's kind of miraculous that we did it. It involved a lot of kind of waiting up for each other and us kind of following each other into situations that the other person probably should have been in. You know what I mean? It was it was weird, but I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if that actually enabled me to get through that first experience and maybe him too in a way that we wouldn't have. Where, I don't know. Where were you at in your recovery process in 2016? I mean, well, it's only then three I years was, after your wreck. Yeah. By then I was through with the eye patch. I had been off the eye patch for like a year and a half. So at the time that felt like a far way behind me. I, I look back at that now and think of 2016 as a lot fresher from the accident than I felt at the time. I yeah. remember at the time that that year and a half of getting that eye patch off lasted for so long emotionally and mentally that 
the the half a year after that felt like another lifetime. Yeah. You know, I felt like a different person. Yeah. Um, I look back now and it seems a lot closer to the accident. Than you were probably time. chomping at the bit, man. I to had just a lot reclaim. Of, I had a lot of hunger for life. I yeah. had a lot of hunger to, and for identity to like be somebody. Um, the reality is my academic career hasn't really made me somebody, you know what I mean? Nobody knows me. Like you said, you Google me and it's not like stuff comes out relating to 19th century American literature, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so it was, it was kind of fun to have this sort of traumatic experience and then to feel like I suddenly had this platform for creating this new identity, this new persona for myself that I could you know, I could be whoever I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, the divide felt like a, a sort of canvas where I could just paint away. And I met some friends. Like, I mean, I met, you do. Jay and you, I mean, on that ride. even if you haven't gone through this, you're, um, you're finding out and learning about yourself, right? Anytime you push yourself in those kinds of ways. And so, but you maybe had a little bit more intent behind it of this real, like hunger for life and of finding an identity and, well, an experience too. You like have I a mean, lot of the, time out there to think about. Yeah, it too. <laughs> and there, the land too. I mean, one of the first attractions to me of the divide was when Bobby pointed out the course, and I looked it up. I just wanted to see the line, you know, like where it went through, and I realized that all the states it had traversed were states that I had always wanted to visit. I had always wanted to go to Montana because my one of my uh, college roommates, Stephen Barker, he was from Montana, and he always used to tell me stories about how much he loved Montana and the landscape there. And I was like, I've always wanted to go to Montana. I've always wanted to go to Wyoming. I've always wanted to see more of Colorado because I've only seen a little peak of it. And New Mexico, I've never been there. And so to me, the ride was like an opportunity to witness these places that I had always had a desire to see. And I was like, oh, now I can just use the bike to go see places for free okay you know what i mean because i don't have money to travel i don't yeah. have money to be a tourist that's a great thing about traveling yeah. uh, vacationing on a bike or whatever is i mean gosh you got your gear food and water food and water pay for food and water that's and then it. everything else you have is on your bike to me it sounded and you get like to some of the most amazing yeah. places in the world away from people i mean it's and like all you have to do is pedal okay. all you gotta do yeah and that to me i think that's how i process it i was like you're going on a scenic it's a great way to look yeah at like it. a scenic you know bike bike tour i guess yeah. now i could call it that um, you didn't look at it that way but. we weren't really racing you know what i mean we weren't really worried about i mean we were we had time goals and i remember us stressing about time goals especially early on when we the rain had us making so much slower progress than we thought we'd be able to make and we were so frustrated and so hard on ourselves about not meeting those time goals but at a certain point especially after um, bobby and i united with jay barre um in montana the three of us kind of united. I think it was in um, Lincoln. I think it was Lincoln, Montana. We met at a, a for breakfast, and he w was ordering a milkshake, and we all got milkshakes one breakfast. <laughs> and we ended up kind of riding together the whole time um, after that, along with another friend of ours, David Martman, and the four of us kind of finished together. And especially after that little group kind of coalesced and cohered, um, I don't know. It just it felt very... Yeah, felt very validating in spite of all the challenges and the hardships. It, I don't know. We, we made sure to have a little fun every day. You know, we hit Steamboat Springs and this freak hailstorm came in. And instead of going out and sleeping in it and feeling miserable, we got a hotel room and we watched Bad Boys. And, you know <laughs> what I mean? And we all giggled ourselves to sleep, yeah. you know, while we had our feet up in the air. You know what I mean? And so that first year, we gave ourselves a lot of luxurious breaks that I didn't take when I went back in 2018. I would I mean, think it would be like, 
I mean, the goal is to finish. Exactly. You know, and I mean, that is a huge challenge and that's yes. a huge accomplishment. And it, for me, at least, that would be my number one goal, finish, yes. you know. And and I like to have fun too, so that would be another goal of mine is to enjoy it. Well, Bobby and I, would, I mean, we had long conversations about that before we did it. We were like, can we do, we would be like, do you think it's possible that we can actually finish yeah, this? Yeah, sure. And finishing was, can we even finish? We didn't even know if it was possible. So that was the goal. And our success finishing that first time out, I think, consisted in knowing when to chill, knowing when to take breaks and just kind of let go of the race and let go of the pressure of or the stress of racing over a three week period and just chill and be friends and enjoy getting to know this new person who, you know, you don't know. And I don't know, just like simple pleasures, milkshakes, yeah. <laughs> friends. Beautiful scenery. Well, you, know? you appreciate that milkshake and that hotel room so much more when you're on the tour divide than you do if you exactly. just like drive down the road with your friends or whatever. That being said, the the seed was planted in that year because I, I mean I especially trying to stay with uh, Bobby and like to keep two people together over that kind of distance. It kind of made me realize that I wasn't really riding my own ride. You know what I mean? Um, and not because I was ahead of Bobby or behind him, really. It was just kind of like, I'm not riding my own pace. You know, like we were trying to stay together. He wasn't really riding his own ride either. You yeah. know what I mean? And it did kind of plant the seed. Like, I wonder what it would go back, what it would be like to go back and to kind of do like what Bailey did. Cause we all watched him and we were like, oh my God, what we, we couldn't believe how just brave what he did was. I mean, cause he didn't know any more about no. the route than we did, Yeah, but he plunged into it head first and just went after it like yeah. with everything he had like right off the get-go didn't like, play it safe didn't no. didn't just say okay well my no. goal is to finish exactly you know no. he just said he wasn't I'm gonna, just trying to finish he was like i'm gonna ride this whole thing i'm gonna ride. find my limit yeah, or, exactly. or find something and, I, and watching him do that i was like i want to go back and i want to try it like that i want to yeah. see what happens when i do it that way for me yeah. And I did in 2018, as it happens, the year that he went back and right. really laid it down. Well, that's you know? it's kind of fun to uh, talk to you now and hear the other side of the story, because for anyone who listened to the Bailey uh, episode, we talk about his 20, well, with his 2016 and his 2018 run. Um, and so now it's kind of fun because y'all trained a lot together. Um, so when he was talking about on the podcast about getting off work and instead of going home and grabbing pizza and beer, going and riding and, you know, 120 miles, he was doing that with you. Y'all yeah. were doing that together. Yeah. Well, Bailey came to Stillwater, um, after selling his share in comrade and he just kind of came here to sort of work part-time or work sort of, or intern, I guess, at the shop just to kind of provide himself with some structure and some steady income while he was training for his divide run kind of knowing he wasn't going to stay at district permanently yeah. he knew he was going to be opening a shop somewhere and obviously that became uh sincere eventually um but yeah when he moved here like i wasn't sure like when he first came here i, I wasn't decided then that i was doing the divide again in 2018 but i had already kind of made the decision that i was just going to try to live in a state of fitness like as if I would be ready to go to the divide. I wanted to basically just kind of be in the shape to do the divide any summer. I was wow. like, what would it be like to just stay in that shape, to never to never let it go, to yeah. just hang on to it? And so that I was experimenting with that. And so Bailey and I were just very both very, it was like, I mean, you call it thirsty for miles. I feel like that's where we were in 2018. Both Bailey and I at the same time were hungry and thirsty for miles. We were just wanted to ride and wanted to grind. And so a lot of that... We just happened to be in the same place at the same time with writing and 
I think we were both able to really push each other harder. You know, I was still riding a geared cutthroat at that point. So I'm sure there were many times that we were on the, the long downhills and Bailey was pushing himself to keep up with me on and on every damn climb. I can tell you <laughs> I was pushing to keep up with him, you know, so I think we were helping push each other in a way okay. while we trained. And then I had been riding with him for maybe like a month. And I remember one day just being overcome with this knowledge that I was like, I want to ride the divide in 2018. And I called him immediately on the phone. And I said, however you're getting there, can I get there the same way? And he was like, I think we can work that out. I was <laughs> like, I'm coming. And then that's when I just kind of decided that I was going to do So it. you were doing all these crazy rides and just thirsty for miles, as you say, without, I mean, with the idea of maybe doing the tour divide, but it wasn't, you weren't t necessarily training exactly. I think that was sometime in like the late fall, if I remember when I committed to it. And okay. then the minute I committed to it, as you do, I mean, this would be my best advice about how to train for bike packing is just put all the shit on your bike as soon as you can and just <laughs> ride it that way. And not just on training rides, but ride it to the store that way, ride it to the work that way, ride it everywhere that way. That was one of Bailey's tips too. No, I mean, this is something we agreed on together. We're like, yeah. let's load the bikes now. And in six months, we'll be ready to ride them wherever we want. Because after a while, you just stop feeling the load. Yeah. If you do it long You're enough, so conditioned it's, to it's, it. there's no difference between a loaded yeah. bike. It's just a bike. You've used to the weight, the feel every where everything is on the bike it's all it, it becomes second nature where you're not it's like you know what bailey said in the interview is you know you don't think about shifting when when you're on single speed like it just uh it, it, you're not even thinking about it anymore and it's kind of the same way i guess with the weight is like it's just yeah that's the way my bike feels yeah a loaded <laughs> bike is a bike when you get to that point i feel like that's kind of good preparation for the divide when yeah. a loaded bike no longer feels loaded it just feels like a bike that's you're you're ready to go what were your goals going into 2018 and yeah, what were your goals? Uh, goal was, uh, to, I wanted to finish in less than 20 days. That was okay. like, I really wanted to, you saw Bailey hit 19 something. I, I don't I mean, honestly, I will be completely frank. I wanted to do it a day faster than I did. I ended up doing it in 18 days and an hour and a half. And I really wanted 17 days. And in fact, I was so out of it like with two days left in that year that I actually thought I had done it. I thought that I was, I thought that I had finished a whole day earlier than I had because I was discounting sure. it in my brain. Um, and I was part of the whole reason why I, like I got to Silver City after not having slept for like a whole night and it was night again. And I just rode through the night again because I thought I was going to be making my goal. And then I got <laughs> like, by sometime the next day I was like, actually you're a day later than you thought. You're not going to get 17 days. You're uh, going to get 18, which is great. Yeah. Um, so my goal was 17. I really thought that I could do that. I thought given my fitness and I, like I had done the math in my head and I was like, I think I could do this. Um, yeah. It that, sounds like you and Bailey both went in very prepared for 18, like 16 was a learning experience. Then 18, it was like dialed in and you, yeah. you knew you yeah. had a pretty good plan. No, I was, I mean, I, I was, all I was doing was racing that yeah. year. I don't think I quite, I think I still had a lot to learn about what it meant to race over that period of time. Like for instance, after the first week, I think the first five or seven days, I kind of had like what I would describe as a mild emotional breakdown where I just like the stress of racing for that long and worrying about your time and worrying about your distance. I just like, I, I got to the point where I was like, I feel like I'm not even enjoying myself. I felt like I had sapped all the Fun. joy out yeah. of the ride and it was creating a crisis. Like I Because you, you put so much pressure on yourself. Yeah. I was like, where am I going to get my energy from if I'm not happy? Like, you know, if I'm just reviling myself every day, every hour, how I can't keep going, I'm going to quit. And so I, I remember I got, I started having that kind of breakdown and I texted my friend Jamie and be like, man, 
I think I texted him something like, man, this racing shit's for the birds. <laughs> and he just called me in 10 seconds. And he was like, hey, man, you okay? You're doing so good, man. Why are you upset? And I was like, I just feel like I'm not enjoying myself. And I, mean, I, and I called Jay. I called Jay and Bobby sitting at that bar in Montana. And I decided to call that day short. I'd only ridden about 50 or 75 miles. And I was like, you know what? Stop. Get a, get a hotel room. Sleep in a bed. I got everything ready for the next week. I did all my shopping, all the water. Everything's yeah, yeah. good. I slept for four hours in a bed. I got up. Kind of got your poop back in a group, you know? Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? And I just kind of realized I was like, yeah, I was like, you need a mental reset. You need an emotional reset. You can't, you can't keep grinding on yourself. You got to like recenter. You got to remember like, you got to remember some passion. You got to remember like, you're not going to ride this on your brain. You're going to ride it on your heart, you know, on your gut. So one thing that uh, Bailey mentioned um, that I should talk to you about was, how you started really fast and you finished really fast. And I think you just talked about both of those. So it's, I'm wondering, did you just start like really fast and then, uh, well, in my mind, I wasn't going fast. fast. I just, I, I started long. So I will correct Bailey's that he okay. started fast. I will. Show, <laughs> I wish I had a damn cell phone video to show you how fast him and Lewis and Gareth and all those dudes were gone. I mean, I was hammering it out of Banff and I couldn't even see them. Yeah. And at a certain point I was like, dude, you got to slow down. You cannot ride with those dudes. So they were going fast. <laughs> I just went Well, he long. said you were going fast. <laughs> no, I went long. I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep. Maybe it was the push. Maybe he, yeah. that's the way he that's, phrased it. It was the, the big push I read, at the beginning and the end. I so rode what, 300. I interpreted that as speed, but he was talking about it's, it's, big pushes. Exactly. Okay. I rode 378 miles. So we're correcting me, not Bailey. <laughs> I, I got to, I started in Banff and I was over Red Meadow Pass before I slept. So how many miles is that? 378. Okay. And, and how, many, end, how many days? The two days? Yeah, it was like, I remember like at the beginning of day two, I was uh, sort of winding my way to Galton Pass. You know what I mean? So around midday of day two, I crossed the border, late morning, midday. So what did you learn from that? Is, is that when you, did you kind of slow it down and yeah, what, what was your strategy My after strategy that? was to make it to the border without sleeping. That was goal number one of 2018 for me was like, I want to make the border with no sleep. What kind of crazy? That's what everybody said. Because everybody else was like, oh, get to Fernie and then sleep. So I got to Fernie a lot later than other people. Like, I can name all the people that were there. Bailey was past it. Gareth was in. Like, Seb. Like, everybody was in Fernie sleeping. <sighs> I got to Fernie. I went to the gas station. I ate a dinner of fried chicken and chocolate milk. And then I got back on my bike and I rode on. And then within a half hour, Seb caught me. Because he was sitting there in his tent and he watched me leave Fernie. And he's like what the fuck? And he caught me and he's like, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, I'm riding. And he's like, how long are you going to go? I was like, to the border. I'm going to America now. I'm not sleeping. And he thought it was, he thought I was crazy. Yeah. He was just like, what you're doing is insane. And like, and I didn't really, at the time I didn't like, I was like, this is my plan. This was my goal was I know that I can ride 275 miles without stopping. I don't care how hard they are. I know I can do it. So to me, it was just kind of like, this was my plan and I was going to do it. And to my mind, I, I thought Bailey was in front of me the whole time. I didn't know he was behind me until I got over the border. Yeah. And I started checking his dot and I was like, oh, Bailey's behind you. <laughs> and I, it was funny, a, um, a friend of ours, I, I think it's, um, uh, I think it's Kale Wright, a friend of uh, mine through Bobby uh, took a screenshot of my dot that first night where it was like, it, it, he has a picture of this where it's like Mike Hall's dot up there in the record. 
And I was like, on 2018, I was like, my dot was right behind his when I made that push at night. Oh now, my. of course, his dot kept going. Yeah. <laughs> and when I fell apart, you know, um, after making it over the border, you know, because it took me, I would say it took me about four or five days to recover from that first push. Because when you're you're trying to recover right. out there. So you had that big first push and then you had to recover on the route. That, that breakdown that I had in Montana was all about that. It was all about that initial push and the exhaustion that I put myself through kind of coming back to haunt me. Right. Everything that you do out there, every push that you make, you're going to have to recover from it while still doing the hardest ride of your life. You know yeah. what I mean? So, and I don't, I think that's what I didn't factor in. So if I did that again, well, actually I'm not going to tell what I'll do it again because I'm just going to do it again. Uh, oh. But no, I mean, I think, I think the game plan at the beginning would have been the game plan that I did at the end. Cause at the end I did a 550 mile push where I didn't sleep but I took two half hour naps Yeah, and the a game would have been if I did what I did at the start, but instead of not sleeping, if I would have just taken a half hour nap, because if I would have taken a half hour nap, I wouldn't have fallen apart ever. And I just would have kept going. Yeah. Well, you learn, I mean, that's kind of the fun part about it is, uh, you're going to learn a lot. And well, the first ultra I ever rode was one week before the start of the tour divide at DKXL. So yeah. The so Bailey and I oh went, yeah the 350 yeah that was the first time i'd ever ridden that long without stopping and then i was like okay i can do that i'm gonna do that starting to divide again and that's how i thought of it i was like what you just did at the xl that's what you're gonna do when you start in banff and i was like okay right and so i just because that's what you knew you could do yeah yeah uh are when are you did you say you don't want to say when you're gonna take another stab at it i mean i feel like COVID is made everything so uncertain with me, you know, registering for rides, but I know that I'll be riding the tour divide again. I don't have a year in mind. Though. Yeah. But, um, well, this year's different, right? It's going to yeah. be border to border. So for well, a lot yeah. of people, that's not, you know, it's not the full route. And so, well, that's how the route was originally written. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I think, know, right? That, that's Isn't the, that's the route. Actually. That's the original route. Yeah. yeah. The Banff thing was added to kind of, I think, give some glamour to the beginning of the race. Right. You know, and a I wow think, factor. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. But like, I'm I'm actually really intrigued to follow the progress this year because it, it is the OG route. You know, I mean, that's how it was originally designed. So I agree a hundred percent. I didn't necessarily share that sentiment, but I know that you know some people definitely feel yeah. that way. You know, like Lael. I mean, you know, she said on the podcast, but you know, she's you know, it, it's not going to be the full route. It's not going to be the record. So it's not. That's the thing is that these numbers that exist. You know, like Mike Hall's record. Obviously, that involves. 275 78 miles of really challenging canadian wilderness so you take that out and like no longer are we talking about the same metrics you know um so i do agree with that but i also think that there's kind of a a beauty in them riding the route as it was originally published by the adventure cycling Association. i may i may edit this out um but um if i can I'm going to uh, drive my band to the finish line oh, cool. and just sit there oh, and like talk to people as they come in. I would love more reports from Antelope Wells as I'm, it's happening. I'm stoked on it. You know, that's what I mean. The like when I was referring to the kind of the oral history of ultra endurance cycling and bikepacking, like a lot of those conversations that happen in Antelope Wells, a lot of the things people say like in the immediate aftermath of finishing that ride and the isolation of that desert landscape when there's usually nobody around, but the one person who decided to ride out there to get you or the nobody who's out there to get you, like I'd be interested to hear more of the reaction. I think those are going to be some interesting conversations. Yeah. I, I, a lot of untold stories from the, 
environs of the border detention facility in Antelope <laughs> Wells. Yeah. Another idea that you may be interested in in terms of the oral history that I'm going to start working on a project to tell um, to capture some of those OG stories, you know, of like, you know, as many as I can of the the um, John Stamstad, you know, Matthew Lee, he's going to be hard to get a hold of, I hear. He probably won't talk to anyone, but, but to the extent possible, I want to like capture some of those stories from the very beginning. I was talking to uh, Mike Dion the other day about it and because he, he can get me in contact with everybody, but I think it'd be neat to capture those stories before. have you been to brush mountain lodge oh no i've met the owner at uh um mulberry gap i think kirsten at brush mountain lodge is probably of all the people i've met in this world she's probably the one i mean i could sit and listen to her tell stories about the history of the divide and how people mm. originally ran it versus today i could listen to her talk on that subject for hours she is very, i never thought about that she, but she is a vessel of all that history you want to know who knows all those stories kirsten it's her okay she's seen it all all right kirsten because she was there I'm when the first she was there when the first writers came through right. with their maps and no fucking gps and yeah she's, she's seen been it there all the whole time she's, she's like the route historian she is and the she, route mother i know she is, she's she is the living history of the divide for sure that's a great idea she's the only person who has it all that's a great idea. everybody else has parts, parts of, of the it. story She's got it all. Yeah. So go, I, the, just go there and sit and just let her talk. Okay, good idea. Yeah. Well, I'll do, I'll do both of them. <laughs> Sorry, Kirsten. I didn't want to out you or anything, but you are the one with the knowledge. Oh, I think, I yeah. hope, you know, that's one nice thing about uh, the podcast has been like, everybody says yes. Every once in a while, someone says no, but it's pretty rare. But for most people, people like want to talk about these stories are interesting. The people are interesting and they're fun to talk about. I mean, they're huge adventures that are life changing for people. And yeah, they're in, people like talking about it. Yeah, I think she's like the reverend mother of the divide route for sure. Anything else worth noting in 2018? I also wanted to talk about the 2020 uh, Arkansas high country. Oh, yeah. So yeah, any anything else from 2018 that... Did I miss anything? Um, I mean, I could tell a whole very interesting story about that final push. I'll just say that yeah. it was mostly inspired by the badass writing of uh, Stefano uh, Romilino. I'm sorry, I'm probably mispronouncing his uh, last name, but he's an Italian who was up there in the top 10 with us and Justin Dubois. I was yo-yoing with those two guys ever since the Great Basin and stuff like mm. that, and it was largely my inability to drop them in any conventional way that led me to stop sleeping. So, um, anyway, um, and you know, my gratitude for, uh, Bobby Wintle and Ryan Simon for coming, picking me up at the end. Um, you know, oh, I do that's think, right. I read that they like race to get there. Well, yeah, they didn't quite realize that I was going to stop sleeping. I had tried <laughs> to warn them. I was like, okay, it's going to get a little weird from here on out. And Ryan was kind of like, I think I know what he's up to. Um, but like it was a they they really went out of their way to come fetch me and I was in a really poor way when they finally uh, managed to get me in the car. So I'll be forever grateful to them for that. And especially since I re-listened to his podcast about um, this run recently, I think it really hit me. And this is a good tie into the Arkansas High Country race, like listening to Bailey's interview about his ride in 2018 and hearing again a new that not even, I won't even call it optimism, that that certainty he has about the ability of a single speed rider to not just win the divide, but to set the record. Like, 
even even the memory of hearing him speak to that like gives me goosebumps. Like and were, I find it. I like. So, I just sat there in silence. Yeah. Whatever. I'm just no, like. He, ugh, I tried to like Bailey. Pump. I love you so much. You <laughs> inspire me so much. Like I was listening to that again in preparation for this interview and realizing that it was because I mean I was a single speed rider. I built up my the Surly Krampus that we rode on that you saw me riding on this morning. That was my first custom build I ever did. I I built it with a thousand dollars of that settlement money from the crash. I took a portion of that and I was like, I'm going to build my first custom bike with this. Yeah. And I built a surly, uh, single speed surly Krampus. And I was like, I want to ride a single speed bike. So I've been riding single speed for a while. I rode my first DK on a single speed. Um, I had done some big single speed events, but conceiving of something like the tour divide made me intimidated to even consider taking it into that type of environment. Sure. And watching, especially in 2018, after training with Bailey and then going out there and watching what he did that year on that bike, it really changed my mind. Like, it made me, the whole damn time I was chasing him that year, I did not want my gears. I wanted to rip them off the fucking bike. I just was <laughs> like, I want to be riding single speed. Yeah. And so after that, I really, I don't, I didn't have any. I mean, I rode one more Trans-Oklahoma. I ran one more ride across the state of Oklahoma. We have a 350-mile route. the gears. Um, yeah, that was designed by Jack Christian, uh, um, ultra-endurance, you know, badass in his own right legend. Um, really, he designed this 350-mile uh, Trans-Oklahoma route, and I rode that for one last time on gears. And then after that, I was like, I'm going to start rethinking my bike setup and after that i started riding pretty much exclusively single speed except for um my cargo bike has got gears but we should at least acknowledge that you came in eighth place yeah and i don't remember your time right off i have it, it written eight, down 18 but... days and an hour and a half okay so how did you feel about that uh result were you happy I, with i'm it? still happy with it yeah. it's like one of the i don't know i think it's one of the most badass things I've ever done, frankly. For sure. Like it, and it felt like that at the time. I remember um, having this crazy hallucinatory ride across that last desert stretch before you get to the pavement that leads to Antelope Wells. It's not a really hilly section, but it's super sandy and weird if you're riding it at night. Um, and I remember just feeling like Justin and Stefano were like right on my wheel that whole section. And I got across that sandy stretch and my phone miraculously had signal right before I went down the road to Antelope Wells and I saw that they were like 80 miles behind me and I kind of knew in that moment that I had gotten the top 10, I had gotten yeah. eighth place. And I was just so happy with myself. I remember that whole like kind of long 60 mile ride on that flat ass pavement. I just remember feeling like really proud of myself and proud that I had kind of like navigated the kind of fallout of that initial push, which cost right. me a lot more emotionally and mentally than I thought it would. And um, and I had a very similar experience at the Arkansas high country where I had in my mind, I had kind of finished the ride. Like once I hit Fayetteville and I knew I only had like 50 or some miles of bike path, I was like, Oh, it's, it's over. You did it. Yeah. And that whole, the last several hours of the ride involved a lot of like crying and shouting and just like a lot of emotions came surging up because i got to yeah like, you got to live in the victory yes. before, like for a while yes. by myself before yeah. it before it was real for anybody else it was already real for me and i got to have hours where i was just kind of sitting there with my own accomplishment before anybody else could share it yeah and i don't can't think of any other facet of life in which i've experienced that form of validation and that self-affirmation you know, is it just it's very empowering. It makes yeah. you feel like 
it makes you feel like a hero, you know, in your own in your own mind, which I think is I think it's a lot easier to be a hero for other people than it is to be a hero for yourself. And in those moments, you feel like a hero to yourself. And like, I really value I don't think I'll ever forget those home stretches, not because they were hard or because they were particularly fast, but because of the feelings I had. I remember uh, the finishing the Arkansas Country race. I was on that bike path because I went counterclockwise. Right. So I finished on the the that, Razorback, yeah, anyway. and I remember crying a lot, sobbing, and almost uncontrollably crying. And I remember saying out loud to myself, "Hey, asshole, why don't you decide to feel happy about this? You know what I mean? Why are you crying? Like, why are you? Why is sadness what's coming out of you? Were they tears of sadness, or were they? Tears no, that's of- what I think. I was crying, and but it was like I realized I was feeling sad, and I was like, "Don't feel sad. Feel proud. Like this, you, what you're feeling is not." sadness it's uh, it's trying to identify yeah. what you're feeling my, my yeah. brain is it's only used to feeling depressed it's yeah. only used to feeling sad so it felt an overwhelming emotion and it was translating it it's as sadness and i'm like no dummy this is victory this yeah. is triumph you're just so unaccustomed to feeling it that you don't recognize it for what it is wow. feel good about this That's be proud it. of yourself you fucking crushed it and i was <laughs> saying these things out loud and even now, like I, I almost feel embarrassed saying that. But why are we embarrassed to like I don't validate think we ours? Be. You know what I mean? We shouldn't be. Yeah. We shouldn't be. Well, it's it's you're not being hyperbolic. Like you did that. Yeah, that, it that's was a over. real. I, I knew it at that point. So I was like, and that's what you're feeling. You're feeling the triumph. But my brain and my psyche was translating it to sadness. And I was like, don't be sad. And it was as soon as I said that out loud to myself, I stopped crying. Yeah. And like the tears stopped coming, and I just felt joy. Yeah. I really appreciate you expressing all of that because a lot of times whenever I do these interviews, um, people can't really put words to what, what that experience is really like. I think it's a really uh, powerful and overwhelming experience and it's really difficult, I think, to actually articulate what is actually happening. But I think it is hard I mean, I think at least it is for me to pat myself on the back and be like, hey, you did a good job. I mean, like, you know, other people tell me the podcast is successful and stuff. And I'm just, I mean, I'll shit on it all day long or whatever. You know, it's like, no, you can't, we can't do that. We have to acknowledge that there's value here. Or, you know, I did something good and it's okay to, to validate those feelings and to, and to be okay with that. Yeah. Self-validation is not the same thing as egomania. You know what I mean? But you kind of have to find yourself in the right moment to recognize that difference. You know? Well, the thing about your experience on 2018 is that you went into it with a lot of pressure on yourself and um, you had to learn about yourself and overcome things along the way to get yourself to the end. It didn't just happen. It wasn't an easy run. I mean, you're not a, you're not an expert ultra. I mean, this was your second uh yeah run on the tour I'm to not buy. paid athlete yeah yeah no. you know yeah. you're just a regular guy i mean on a lot of that's the kind of the cool thing about this shit though right is like you're just kind of a regular guy um in a lot of i mean i don't want to say you're a regular guy but no, i mean no, you're I mean, not a paid athlete is that so exactly. I mean, you're not like some spot you're just you're a regular guy a normal guy with a regular job family and everything that um puts your heart and your soul and your body into something a hundred percent and you you were able to like work through all of that over 2700 miles and come out victorious i mean that's a that's a huge thing yeah no i mean it i i think my experience especially 2018 to divide run and the 
Arkansas high country race of 2020, they'll probably for the rest of my life feel like some of the greatest accomplishments I ever had on my How own, they you know, not? like things yeah. that I did for myself and by myself. Well, know? that's, I love that aspect of about, about it is it is self-supported. There's no way to not accept the responsibility for the outcome, whatever it is, because it's on you. It's on you to prepare. It's on you to deal with whatever comes up in the field and pedal your bike and all that. That's one of the things I love. I mean, that's the pureness of it is this self-supported aspect. And that's when you get to really work through a lot of who you are and how tough you want to be and uh, all kinds of stuff. I mean, I've heard all kinds of story. I mean, how Russell worked through, you know, Vietnam war, you know, pains that he would held on to for decades and yeah. decades. And he used the tour divide as a healing mechanism to work himself through, you know, all that stuff that he carried yeah. with him for. No, I mean, I feel like you're, I mean, your podcast and others are records in a way of how cycling is kind of transformative for everybody who does it, but in radically different ways, depending on who they are and where they are. And yeah, it's hard to capture, but I guess it's like, it's just a collection of everybody's stories and in there it kind of yeah. tells the picture of a broader, cause like I was saying, we're all different, different experiences and how we experience stuff like this and the ways we deal with it are all different. I do want to, uh, about Arkansas high country. Let's talk about so, it. Uh, I'm, I'm all about it. The, the main question is single speed. Like, in my mind, now you've written both, so you'll have to correct me, but I think whenever I heard Bailey talk about, you know, single speeding the Tour Divide and and his, for anyone who didn't listen, I'll just rehash it real quick. Essentially, you know, I asked him why single speed and he, his answer was like, man, a lot of those hills you're hiking anyway. And whenever he's hiking, he's like saving some of his muscles so that when he is riding, those muscles are actually fresher and he can actually push harder. I was like, okay, well, that's actually like a pretty reasonable explanation. But Arkansas is so freaking steep. And, and it's, it's not these long sustained climbs. It's, you know, short, punchy one mile and then down one mile. And then, you know, yep. um, so it's a complete, right. Is it a completely different yes, kind of I ride? Mean, it's a very different quality of climbing. And, and, and single speed would be much, in my mind, much more difficult on the hard, high country than it would be. Potentially yeah. And, on and I will say that I don't think going into it, I was fully aware of how, of how <laughs> different it would be. Like I was frankly surprised how much I was walking the first few days, uh -huh. especially because I started counterclockwise. So I started with all the really big stuff, you know, that was at the end for the people who were racing the other way. Um, and I was frankly a little surprised how much I was walking. Um, had you ridden much in Arkansas previous? I had ridden a couple times. Like we had, I had gone out there with um, Dylan Morton and Nickel Potter and um, other friends who were in the Arkansas region and who had invited us out. So I had done some bike packing out there and some loaded riding. And I, I knew what I was getting in for. The, the reason for the gearing, because most people were kind of alarmed by how stiff my gear was. Well, well yeah. 4220, which. A little Jesus. over, which I mean, even I mean, that's the reaction I got. I feel like a lot of people, and they keep thinking about that gearing in comparison to those big climbs. And that gearing, I was not pedaling that, I was right. walking my bike up those climbs. But there's also like almost 400 miles of pavement in that ride, which is not, I mean, not all the pavement is super hilly. You know, a lot of it is rolly, you right. know what I mean? And so I was really trying to pick a gear that would be good for the whole ride, not just for the super climby tough stuff, but that would get me through that sea of pavement in and out of Little Rock, for instance. Right. I didn't want to be in a super small gear 
hammering my mountain style, you know, single speed through through a city. Like I knew the it stress makes sense, of being in right? Travis. Because so that four hundred miles of pavement really is a determining factor. Because oh, yeah. on the climbs, that you basically have a choice with single speed. You can choose to have an easier gear that'll get you up, or oh well, well I guess on the downhill you would probably you're be not like pedaling much anyway. anyway. Especially those so downhills, it really comes down to, yeah. yeah. That was one of the things that I think I underestimated was how. But you're hiking, you're hike a biking almost anyway. Even with gears, a lot of some of those. I mean, we were just on our bike rafting trip, and we all had gears, and some of them we were walking. You know, I mean, I mean, I was just steep. listening to Ted King's podcast, and he was like, I was walking, yeah, was like dozens, maybe hundreds of climbs. Like you could tell he was even right. I was like, so if Ted kinda, King's walking climbs, and there's yeah, no way I'm kind of makes sense in that way i mean that's what i mean single speed on the arkansas high country race you have to not only think about the climbing because the climbing is what everybody talks about eighty thousand feet and a thousand miles everybody keeps talking about that but it's like that eighty thousand feet of climbing is not evenly distributed across every mile like in those mountainous sections like there's like three or four really really hilly sections but the roads that connect all those sections are not super hilly and you got to think about being on your same gear through all of that. So it's a very tricky race to pick a gear for. But like, and most of the people are like, that is so tall. It's like, well, right. But this is still small on this pavement. Mm. Like it's already spinny on the pavement. Mm. And you're going to be on this for hours. And yeah. those are the more grueling hours when you're not in the tree cover and it's not shaded. You're exposed. The heat from the road is coming up on you. You got cars passing you. Like that was the stuff that I was worried about. I was like, I want to be fast through all that crap. And if I have to walk, I'll walk. Yeah. And I did. I walked a lot, <laughs> a lot of walking. In fact, at the end, the only physical, I've had a lot of people very, I don't know, kind of meanly, I would say, who were like, oh, you single speeded that? Well, I wouldn't do that. I value my knees. And it's like, I've never actually had knee problems from single speeding, <laughs> except from. That's you projecting walk. your problems onto me, yeah, but I don't you know, have I was that. Like, my knees are fine. <laughs> um, but actually, at the end, I did notice that from walking my bike, I actually did have a hitch in my knee because you, when you hold your bike out to the side mm. of you, you kind of, you don't walk straight, you know, sure. you kind of hitch your gait. And I did have knee pain from that. So one of the things that I will certainly be practicing in the future is walking on either side of my bike, yeah. dismounting. And I know that that's something Bailey's already made a habit for himself, wow. but it was only something after Arkansas that I was like, this is why you need to do that. Now. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think I'd ever done a, that extent of walking that extent of hike a bike on a, multi-day ride but now that i have i'm like that's why you get off on both sides because you'll actually i'm gonna start practicing that too now to. yeah if you want a single speed bike pack hike on both sides yeah walk your bike on the right walk it on the left well, it seems like just also a good uh i don't know if you're injured or something it seems like a good thing to be able to do yeah. you know uh just in general i mean i try to you know we're all cyclists so i'm always trying to like hone my skills yeah. a little bit i mean you learn as you said earlier you, you kind of learn something on every ride no matter how much you know so that try, was one yeah. thing i took away from this one is yeah, I learned something from you on single speed earlier about, you know, how to how to pump on those flats yeah. a little bit and pedal did, with a little bit. I did, I did want to bit. tell you on that ride, and since we've brought them up so much, I will give credit. I do feel like that that style of single speeding on the gradual downhills is something that I gleaned from Bailey, like yeah. chasing them, because there would be so many times we'd be out on rides together, and I'd be in my, like I had a two-by set up on my cutthroat, so I could get in really stiff gears and I'd be in my hardest gear hammering down a hill. And like Bailey is like on my wheel. And I'm like, how is he even doing that? And I think that that fast pace, like high cadence riding and then coast, high cadence riding, yeah. you know, that's, I feel like 
I feel like I kind of started doing that spontaneously, but I actually feel like it might be an imprint. I feel like if I had Bailey right in front of me, I'd be like, oh, there that is. That's where you got that from. So. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I guess to describe for people listening, essentially what I picked up on and that, what we're talking about is, because um, if for anyone who single speeds, um, you'll know that like whenever you're kind of on a flat or you're just kind of spinning a little bit, my tendency has always been to kind of just like, as soon as I can pedal, you know, I'll start pedaling. But what you were doing is was kind of like letting it come down to where you had a little bit more of a stiffer pedal. And then you're able to like kind of spring yourself forward. Right. Yeah. You like as soon as the bike starts losing momentum, that's when you surge. You don't yeah. try to keep it surging yeah, because then you'll wear yourself out it. and cramp. So you wait till the bike is just dipping back and then you surge it and then you coast. And then you just, and then it's like, um, it's almost like, it feels more like boating. You know, it feels almost like kind of turning a sailboat into a wind. You know what I mean? You're kind yeah. of like making progress using your momentum. You know, I saw you do that earlier. I was like, huh, mm-hmm. I learned something real yeah. quick. I, I don't think I invented that. I think I just stole that unconsciously from Bailey. I'm well, that, pretty sure yeah. that's how he rides. So. That's how we, that's how <laughs> yeah. we do it. That's how one yeah. way I learned. The timing though, that, that like not doing it too soon, that was worked out from, you know, practice, you know, like, yeah. cause it often happened that I'd be going on a downhill and I'd start pedaling and I would throw my weight to the side and I would almost crash on downhills on single <laughs> speeds. But so the timing you work out over practice, but yeah, that, that method though, I do think is probably something I gleaned from Bailey, just full credit, full credit. Yeah. What was your goal going into the high country and, and spoiler alert for anyone who doesn't know, you said an FKT, on the high country for single speed and you also came in fourth overall is that correct that's correct so i what was your goal going into that i i mean you learned a lot in 2018 you learned a lot about pushing yourself i mean like i said i was probably a little ignorant about the quality of the riding you know and in fact i have this distinct memory of uh us all going just to kind of make sure our bikes were all operating well well we went to the um parking garage that's right near the hotel in uh you know bentonville we were all staying before the race and we went up in the parking garage and the driveway to get up there was like super steep and i remember being like god damn this is steep and uh my buddy austin turner who also did the ride and who finished right after me in fifth was like i think these grades are going to be pretty common (laughs) starting tomorrow and i was like shit um you know, uh, anyway, um, so what I mean is I was a little bit ignorant about what type of grades, yeah. and et cetera, that I was faced with. Um, but I really wanted to do it in um, six days or less. That was my goal going into it. I really felt like I could do that immediately when I started. I was it, like, it took me three days to do what I thought was going to take me two days to do. I make these like small little cheat sheets mm-hmm. for my ultras that just kind of involve like the town names and how far until the next town and whether there are services. It's like a cheat card that's based on these cheats that go around for the, the divide. But for a race like the Alexander that I did, you know, um, the last year there was the Almanzo. I did the 390 mile Alexander that year on a single speed. And then the high country race, I made these like tiny little, like smaller than a baseball card, cue cards that are the whole race just on one card. And I okay. keep them in my bag. So I can just use it as a quick reference for when I pull into a town, how long is it till the next town and where are the stores? Sure. So anyway, like I, according to that, I plotted out my ride on that and what I thought would take me two days at the beginning took me three. So I ended up losing that first day and that first hard stretch. What was your final time? It was, uh, seven days and 12 hours. Really fast still. 
yeah, Rebecca I mean, Rush, when she set the fastest time or the the first fastest known time was like eight days. Jay Peterberry came in. I think he was around six days, and he was a geared bike. And I mean, so six, seven days on a single speed. I mean, obviously you got the HKT, so it's the fastest. Yeah, time. <laughs> I mean, and I knew. I mean, um, there was a, another really cool guy I met at the Arkansas Hike Race. Aaron Arnzen, I'd never met him before. I think I had seen his bikes and stuff like that on Instagram, but he should, he was at the Arkansas High Country Race with a single speed, and he was on the course the year before. Um, he hadn't finished it, but he had been out there before on a single speed. I didn't know there was going to be another single speed rider out there when I went. I thought I was the only one. So when I went into it, I was like, well, you're the only single speeder. So if you finish, you'll get the FKT. And it felt. <laughs> oh, and you then, were the first too. Yes. Okay. It's Cause well, this that's is the third year. Yeah, exactly. No okay. one's ever, I was the first one to ever finish. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, but you, you did f- be one other single speeder. That's right. Well, that's what the thing is. I, I went into it being like, well, there's not a lot of pressure. If you finish, you'll get an FKT. How great is that? You know what I mean? Yay. But <laughs> then I got there and there's another single speeder there and he had wider tires in a smaller gear and his bike looked dope as fuck. And I was like, <laughs> Oh no, maybe I did this wrong. Um, and you know, for a while I didn't know if he was ahead of me or behind me cause his spot tracker wasn't working. So what I mean is that I, I was in a single speed race at least for the first few days no. and not feeling like I was doing very well. I felt like I was, um, you know, losing. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it was, I was very happy with the result. No disappointments at all, especially to finish in a time before, Rebecca Rush, I will, in the interest of full disclosure, she dealt with rain, like a lot of rain, I think, when she was out there. <laughs> yeah. At, and we had pretty much phenomenal weather in 2020. I know it was a little bit chilly, but I really don't mind a little chill at night, sure. especially because it justifies getting in a nice sleeping bag instead of not having one, which I love. <laughs> um, but man, when I was out there many, many, not many times, every day, I was like, if it were raining, oh my goodness, would I be going so much slower? So, yeah. I mean... What I mean is that it does feel like a very significant accomplishment to come in under Rebecca Rush's time. But if it had been raining, I don't think I would have finished. Like it, it sure. would be an exceedingly hard course to do in yeah. moisture. It's yeah. very, very difficult. Lots of, they're not really creeks anymore or rivers, but they used to be. And so if there's rain, they're going to turn into creeks and rivers again. You know what I mean? And oh, yeah. There's a lot. There's of a lot of water out there. A lot of water. water. And uh, yeah, so doing that in eight days in rain. That. Oh yeah, no, yeah. no disrespect to yeah, her. She's I mean, got, she's, uh, she was just on the show actually. Oh, I heard her. I, I yeah. listened to her uh, podcast with rapt attention while I built my uh, kids' bikes in the back oh, of good, district. Good, in good. fact, yeah. So, but I, I really that. enjoy talking to her. She's been an icon for me. I mean, you heard. I mean, all the way back since like the late nineties and early two thousands. Well, that stuff. was interesting. That was a really interesting perspective to hear you yeah. address her that way because <laughs> I don't feel like I had heard that. I was story hoping, yeah. of hers, you know what I mean? Like where she came from. And that was because I remember those shows on TV. You know what yeah. I mean? I was like, I remember that. And um It was, was so crazy. Yeah. yeah. I it mean, was really she, interesting to hear that, that whole thing set me on this course. I'd never really talked about it before, but being more, more bikepacking uh centric. But since she was an eco challenge, yeah. and that was like the thing that really like lit the fire in me to like go whole hog on just adventuring and kind of set me on this course. It was, yeah, really great to talk. And I love like her takeaways and the wisdom that she's like learned, you know, as a result of just a lifetime of putting herself in these crazy situations. It was like you were saying earlier, I think it's one thing to do these rides and to have these experiences, but it's its own kind of challenge to figure out a way to articulate them in a way that other people can understand and appreciate what you're doing. And yes. she does that so 
effortlessly. We were talking earlier on our ride about how Bailey also has that quality. He has a way of talking about these experiences that make them sound so accessible. You know what I mean? These aren't like you can have this experience. You can have this transformative experience in your own backyard. And like, there's something about the way that Rebecca Rush says that, that makes it, makes you believe it. You know what I mean? Yeah. She's very inspirational. It was great. Yeah. Again, I mean, it's just like, you don't, you don't know these people at all other than, you know, from what you see, the results and all this stuff on TV. And then you get a chance to talk to them like, wow, you're just a really impressive person, you know, like a well-rounded, um, just a really amazing human. You too. Look at you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> What's next for you, Doctor Seth? I haven't Ooh. called you Doctor Seth Wood That's yet. That's okay. You, it's not uh, your official. I think more people in the bike world insist on my degree than even my students. So it's it's kind of a novelty uh, for <laughs> because me. Because it's probably like rare. We're all just like uh, it's whatever. It's funny. All my students are really intrigued by my bike riding, and all my bike riding friends are really intrigued by my degree. And I'm like, <laughs> maybe one day these worlds will converge. Uh, um, I don't know. I mean, it's like I said, COVID really caused me to pause registering for events. Like it was, I felt like I had been in this kind of automatic mode of registering for anything I was interested in. COVID made me kind of stop and really think about the ethics of just registering for things in advance of them happening, you know, especially being a family man at this time. It's been such a chaotic and uncertain time that I didn't do a lot of registering for events in the past year. Um, That's obviously that world is kind of slowly going away. But in terms of long-term goals, I would really, really like to go do a bikepacking race um, abroad. I would like to go do the Silk Road mountain bike Mm -hmm. race or any one of these numerous gorgeous rides through Africa or South America. Like my, my ultimate goal is to take this skill set and to go experience a a foreign place. Wow. Um, I've talked about um, even doing some, because I mean, part of my degree history is language acquisition. I mean, to even get into my graduate program, I had to have three la- three foreign languages. Which um, are? They were at the time French, German, and Chinese. Oh, um, wow. Which, which have, dialect of Chinese? Uh, Mandarin. Is, okay. Now that... Uh, my dad spoke Mandarin. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I actually, I mean, I started... Mandarin study late in college and was actually really good at it. But it's one of those things, especially the tonal speaking, that if you don't practice it, you really lose touch with it. So unfortunately, I've lost most of my it's Mandarin. But the most difficult language or one of? Very, very hard. Yeah. But, um, but I love language acquisition. It's such an important part of what I study is language that what I would really like to do is to make a practice of like doing some language study, like learning Spanish and then going to ride the Baja Divide or go somewhere in South America. Try to learn enough you know you know like to like actually like, like immerse the, yourself exactly, in the culture like learn the yeah. languages of the places you're going and then to try to like well now you, you know, can talk to them exactly now it's I mean? not like you're just hand signaling or what yeah. i mean you and can I actually like that would have bring a whole other kind of challenge is that if you're dealing with like i even noticed it in canada like just when you're in a place where the dollar is not the currency it's something else you have to think about while you're in canada yeah <laughs> how are you spending money like you know what and that's just this other thing and i feel like that would add you know, I've watched um, a lot of these, you know, kind of athletes at the at the head of this game, like go to these um, other countries. And I'm like, man, that's got to be a whole different kind of challenge is being in a sort of foreign environment where, you know, none of the signage is in your language. Nothing's really there for you. That's yeah. got to add a whole different element that I'm really excited to take on one day. So, 
Yeah, I never really kind of thought about that element of it, but it certainly, I mean, it's a culture shock yeah. in addition to yeah. the shock of like racing right. and being completely, I mean, the signage will look different. The way the infrastructure is done is it's going to be different. Yeah. I mean, when you bike pack, you really develop, a, I think, kind of like this very innate sense for how civilization bleeds into the wilderness. Like you can kind of perceive getting close to town before you actually see signs yeah. of it. And I feel like in a different country, those all those signals would be different. Yeah. You wouldn't recognize it in the same way. And I think it would kind of, you know, you would you would learn again. I like that. But before you go and do that, I need you to come and set an FKT on the uh, East Texas Showdown. All right, let's do it. October 1st. I'll, I'll bring a single speed. I'll probably be the only one. <laughs> Just like Arkansas. <laughs> Finish I, it. FKT. Yeah, I, I have no idea. I've never held a race before, but uh, I'm really excited about it. It's a fun distance because 388 miles you're probably not going to sleep. You know, the people yeah. who are really wanting to push it, you can do it all very light, very fast. It's at low elevation, not a lot of climbing. So, I mean, it's designed to be the fast people can really be tempted to just leave their stuff and go and tackle it. But it's short enough to where now we can bring in the community and yeah. we can like, uh, maybe it's a good first time or you're still getting into, you know, bike packing. There's a lot of resources on the route. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a lot more doable, you know, it's yeah. not, you know, and so, and it also allows for the cool, kind of cool thing about it is, you know, Thursday night we'll have a little get together and uh, Sunday at eight o'clock, we're going to have like a, I don't know, some kind of party, some kind of shindig, but we don't get that a lot in bikepacking events right. where you, you know, I'm kind of hopefully trying to bring a little bit of that gravel community into bikepacking to where we can all like congregate and like hang out and tell the stories. And we might even do like a live podcast or something like a live Q and a. So I think a bikepacking event with an actual party at the end sounds like the best of all the world. So. I think so. Well, yeah. I'd love to, love to have you come out there. I, if we I'm, could. I'm there. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, anything else, my friend? I um, appreciate it. I do want to say, man, I appreciate you uh, sharing your story. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while and get a chance to meet you. And it sucks that you got hit and everything. But the story of like what happened after that and, and what you've done with your life and the accomplishments that you've been able to achieve and everything. And uh, it's truly um, um, impressive. And so I appreciate, I appreciate you sharing I'm, the story. Ultimately, I think grateful for it it wasn't it wasn't an experience i would wish on anybody but yeah. the the way it's changed me and the positive effect it's had on me and the way i relate to other people i kind of wish that for everybody so it happened to me in that way which is kind of a bummer but not really anymore you know it's always about how we react to things that happen to us in our lives and everybody has challenges and trials and yours was very dramatic but it, it always comes down to how are you going to respond to that? And, you know, you had an opportunity to reshape your life and say reevaluate and, you know, and like, what am I going to do with it? And you've really like stepped up into the role of saying, I'm going to live this life and I'm going to, I'm going to maximize it. Well, I think, I think bikes are really good for that. I think bikes are really good at helping people transform in ways that are healthy and validating and productive for yourself and for other people like bikes are cool bikes yeah. are magic bikes are death baby yeah i'm so glad that you're in the community man it's it's you too, uh, man it's nice to finally meet i wish we had had more time for riding but maybe in the future maybe when i come to texas we'll 
We'll oh, have more time for hangouts. We will 100% do it. I'm remiss that I don't have more time here in Oklahoma. Because that's the first time, and now I'm like, well, fuck, I should have just stayed here the whole time. Well, <laughs> we're not we're not going anywhere. So I know. These roads, and you're close, we, too. Yes, we are. We're neighbors. Dude, so. it's a six-and-a-half-hour six drive, which for me, who's I like to drive. I like to do road trips. I'm like, six-and-a-half hours, man. I'll go. I'll do that in like two weeks. You know, I'll be back up here. Or maybe me and the district people could ride halfway to you and you could ride halfway to us and we could oh. find a good bike packing destination between us. That'd be interesting. Yeah. That'd be interesting. We've done that with some folks in Arkansas. So yeah. Let's uh let's uh chat more about that. All right. Sounds good. All right, man. Well, thanks again. Yeah. All right, everybody. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Um, what a profound story. And it's even made more remarkable by how loving the cycling community was to a man that was a victim of vehicular assault, you know, to a man that they didn't, didn't know, a guy they didn't know, uh, but they opened their arms, they opened up their wallets, and it gave Seth a, a community and a family that he didn't have before that accident. So it's tragic in many ways, but it's so beautiful that the community opened their arms, brought him in, supported him, and look at the profound impact that it's had on his life and look at what he's been able to accomplish. And I just, I don't know, it really shows the power of this community and how special it really is and and how great the people are. So again, I appreciate them telling their story and uh, I'm looking forward to going back. I think uh, I want to I think we need to talk to Bobby Wintle and some of the other people over there. And um, they just got a lot of good stuff going on. I'm really excited to go back there, chat with them, and just learn more. I'm always eager to get to know people, their stories. And uh, there's just so many great people in this community. So it's a lot of fun. All right. Well, today has been a long one, so I won't keep you too much longer. But if you really do enjoy these kinds of podcasts, if you like this content, um, even if it's only worth a dollar a month, that is okay. But please, do me a favor, head over to patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. You can hire me to be a full-time podcast host for as little as a dollar a month. And you will get access to the patron-only podcast called Shifting Gears. And we actually recorded episode one last night, which was a live AMA with me. Uh, it was hosted over on our private patron uh, Facebook page. I don't know. Like I was pretty nervous because you're just like on the spot, but I think it went pretty well. I got some good feedback from people. Uh, I tried to have fun and uh, yeah, we just answered your questions. That's it. But uh, this first one was really just an opportunity for me to uh, interface with the system and see how it all worked to be live. I'm, I don't do a lot of stuff. Well, actually that was yeah, that was only the second one I've ever done live. The first one was uh, with Mike Dion for the uh, Ride the Divide 10-year anniversary. Yeah, I mean, the, the live stuff is just all new to me. So this was a great opportunity to uh, work through some of the bugs and just see how it would work. And I think it went pretty well. I think everybody had a good time. Uh, but in the future, we're going to have guests and you're going to be able to ask questions real time and interact real time. So it should be fun, a uh, completely different spin than what we're doing over here at Bikes for Death, which is what makes it exciting. So if you're interested in that, you know what to do. Head over to Patreon, sign up, and get access to that patron perks, and you can feel good. When you go to bed at night, you'll sleep just a little bit better. And who doesn't want a good night's rest? 
All right, everybody. But before you go to sleep, don't forget, go ride your damn bike. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Oh.